Welcome back, boys and ghouls, to Ghoul v. Scream Set Horror-tober. On today's episode, we will be discussing Clive Barker's Hellraiser from 1987 and William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist Three from 1990. These are two singular visions of evil that are united both in their thematic content, but they are also paired together because they are both directed by the authors of the source material. And they are both amazingly assured and perfectly executed films by two men who are primarily writers and in Barker's case had never directed a movie before. They are competing visions of evil and damnation. One of them comes from a gay British man and the other, a devout American Catholic. And I think we will have quite a bit of fun peeling back the veil on just what that entails in these two authors and directors, visions of satanic otherworldly evil. And without further ado, joining us on today's episode is Goolvy Scream Set's returning champion from season one of Movie Mindset. It is the co-host of Blowback, Brendan James. Games. Hey, everybody. Yes. Brendan, uh, it, it's so good to have you back on the show. We, uh, you were on the season one to talk about Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And now uh, you and I both are both confirmed horror movie heads. We got to come on to talk about Hellraiser and Exorcist 3, two movies that we are both obsessed with. Yes. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, Exorcist 3. We couldn't help but talk about it even on our Cure episode that we did. Because yes. it's always seeping into the the uh, the membrane of uh, when, when I'm when I'm talking about the spooky uh, side of of, uh, of of films, and this is also you did an episode on Exorcist Three, I think, for the Sleazoid Show, and I did an episode with them on the Ninth Configuration, the only other movie that William Peter Blatty directed. So I um, actually a fun fact is when I was going on Sleazoids, the first thing I asked was, "Can I do Exorcist 3? And they said, Will actually did Exorcist 3, <laughs> like That's a couple weeks ago. And I was like, fuck. Well, shout out, shout out to Sleezoids. But Hessa, you will yes. finally get to do Exorcist 3. And yes. Uh, we, uh, first, we're going to talk about, we're going to go chronological. First, we're going to talk about Hellraiser. But I guess like the thing that strikes me about both of these movies is going back to that they are both the products of the writers of, of the source material. And because Clive Barker had never directed a movie before and William Peter Blatty had only directed one other movie before tackling like his premier franchise after a, you know, uh, widely considered terrible exorcist sequel, exorcist Two: heretic. But the thing is like, this gets into like why I'm fascinated with the horror genre as kind of like elemental filmmaking as like stripping down to the bare essentials of like how to provoke a reaction in an audience, how to get the, how to get your audience to feel something. And in this case, like the fact that these are two primarily authors directing these movies, I think you can see in both of them, like in how perfectly executed these movies are like a real test case for like the horror genre and just like filmmaking as like it's essential, like power in these movies. Yes. 
absolutely and like from from the sound design to the editing to the like the 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 gore effects and just like it's astonishing that like these aren't directed by two like you know like masters like william friedkin or john carpenter or something yeah and, i and, actually would go as far as to say i like exorcist 3 more than exorcist 1 which is a bold <laughs> statement but well once again we get back into the halloween 1 versus halloween 3 dichotomy and these like triptychs yes. of films like <laughs> it's so hard i mean the ex- the original exorcist friedkin's exorcist is a complete masterpiece it is such a brilliant movie but something about Exorcist 3 is like it's the better horror movie and I and yes. I think it is because it has like a more earnest grappling with true evil. Like and I think like yes. Blatty is really like struggling with his own pessimism and faith over uh the existence of evil in the world and like it it Exorcist really really goes to 11. But let's start with Hellraiser, which is basically a writer um instead of de- dealing with his pessimism and f- doubts about faith, it's really him dealing with his uh sadomasochistic kinks and perversions. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Hellraiser, which is based on the Clive Barker uh, novella, The Hellbound Heart, is that like, okay, the Hellraiser, it's one of those movies that's like when you were a kid was just like beckoning to you with pure malevolent intent from the horror section of the VHS store. It was Pinhead holding that box on the cover. We have such sights to show you that I was just like, oh man. And then like, for me as a kid, I don't know about you guys, but like if, if you were hardcore enough, like if you had passed the Stephen King test in terms of like reading horror fiction, then like then you might be twisted enough for Clive Barker because he, like his writing just introduces like sex on like a level that Stephen King never really touches. And it's just like both reading Clive Barker's like uh, short stories and, and horror fiction and then, then seeing Hellraiser for the first time, I was just like, oh, there, there are pleasures better than sex. Tell me more. Watching watching this for for the first time since I was like a kid probably, and like I was like, oh, this is like one of the gayest horror movies I've ever seen in my life. This is truly like 
so so from the eyes of a, a homosexual man <laughs> and like there are scenes like where frank first shows up and it's the flashback and frank shows up drenched in like water wearing <laughs> yes. looks like like wearing eyeliner wearing a leather coat and he's just like i'm frank mind if i come in <laughs> it's me frank mind if i come in <laughs> it's so fucking gay and every there's so much of that in this and i i can't wait to talk about it so well, unlike Unlike King, Clive Barker sort of incorporated, to say the least, incorporated sex into his visions of horror, whereas King is sort of, you know, there are sex scenes. Yeah, there are um, sex scenes that to, happen in King books, but they're always very awkward and sort of land like a lead balloon in the middle yes, of his prose. He, yeah, the, the word uh, pound cake uh, <laughs> is <laughs> kind of the, the shorthand. Well, so, so Barker is a, is a little bit different. Yeah, no, Stephen King is like, he's the school teacher from Maine who would like uh, get, get yacked up and just pound out books on his typewriter. But like Stephen King, God bless him, kind of a dork. Clive Barker was working as a male escort when he was 18 and 19 years old in London or somewhere in England. Just think about what that entails and how that may have yes. colored his uh, rather, uh, I don't know, de- like decadent and, and, and sort of uh, expressionistic worldview of pain and pleasure. If you, if you cut, if you took the sex out of Hellraiser, it would be a couple at, a, at divorce <laughs> proceedings <laughs> and then the credits would roll. <laughs> yeah, now, well, when, when we were watching it la- uh, last night, uh, Catherine came in and and she started watching it and she's like, "Well, I, I had no idea Hellraiser was so horny." And we were like, "Oh, it's it's the horniest movie ever." <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's so the like. There's a part where like a wall opens to hell and there's literal like mucus <laughs> as it's opening. Oh yeah, and those like little special effects details are why I think like. Oh, why this movie works so well. It's, I mean, there's other things that we, we'll talk about, I guess, when we get to like the kills and everything. But the effects are are just we can get into them later. But I mean, they they hold up uh, probably better than than even some of the great like classic examples that, that people rattle off. I, I thought that the effects in Hellraiser on my whatever umpteenth viewing this was uh, just still so impressive and, and so fun. And it's also like with, with all of the gore and the Cenobites and like the 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 this like the the character design and the design of the box, the lament configuration. It's also a ri- like for the time nineteen eighty seven, blindingly original and like really effective. Now. The thing about Hellraiser is that it did inaugurate like a character that is on par with, let's say, like Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers in Pinhead and the whole Cenobites and like the lore around them as these kind of like archangels of sadomasochistic delight who take you to hell. But the thing is, people always like uh, foreground the Cenobites and how Hellraiser is all about Pinhead and the Cenobites. But like rewatching this movie or if you watch it for the first time, you may be surprised that like the Cenobites and Pinhead are kind of an afterthought to what is, because it's written and directed by Barker, basically the template of a classic British gothic horror story about a yes. desiccated a desiccated house, an evil stepmother and uncle, a cuckolded father and and a cuckolded husband and father and like a naive young woman like on the cusp of adulthood like a, you know, a naive girl on the cusp of her womanhood it, it really goes back to what um like what you were saying last week will of like an american ghost story it's like the background radiation of america is just horror and in a british ghost story it's the kind of contained in this house the trauma of one family and in this case like the 
this gay this gay perv who lives in their family <laughs> who is it part of the family I would, who... des- I would describe frank as a like uh, a dark sex warlock he's yes, he's, he's doing evil se- there's sex people lynn he's do he's a sex person <laughs> and he's not to be trusted <laughs> In in the middle of, of us watching it, when she's bringing when Julia is bringing back all the guys, I just thought, well, what if one of the guys she brought back was Alan Partridge, and she's trying <laughs> they to literally are, <laughs> yeah, because they're not so that, many, they're not that far off. Um, so many random like incidental British people in this movie, and like, yeah. Well, but the, but I, I totally agree that um, one thing I really enjoy about the film because it's 1987, yeah, uh, right. So by now, you know, there's been The Shining. Certainly, there's been The Exorcist. There's there's sort of um, the ghost story or the haunted house movie at that point in the late 80s had been freed a bit from the uh, more traditional gothic, you know, cobwebs and and uh, creaks in the attic and stuff like that. And there, there have been more modern takes on it, but this movie really fuses. And marries the more classic, the more classic goth, gothic, gothic is what I meant to say. It's kind of goth too, but the gothic atmosphere and themes with a modern feel with you know BDSM demons and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 like it makes the subtext of the gothic British horror just in, just entirely textual in with the introduction of the BDSM uh, sex demons. Mm-hmm. But it does that without taking out that little sliver that like mystery which is so that's the sleight of hand the true magic of this movie which is like if if anyone else were to try and make the subtext of like a gothic like haunted house story text there would be no like you know no no mystery to it there would be no but like the way barker does it the sex is explicit and it's right there on the surface for you just have to dig like one inch down but there's still like this these hints at this like you know dark souls ass like (laughs) lore of like what is this hallway i mean we find out later in hellraiser 2 that that's hell the the hell dimension and like um, but like, it's like, what's this weird creature? Who are these guys? Like, what is going on? What, what are the like- rules? Like, and, and Brendan, like we were like to sort of explain like the Cenobites, the, the fascinating thing to me about Barker's conception of hell and damnation and evil in this movie is how essentially divorced from morality it is that like the Cenobites are not evil entities. They simply are, as you described them, Brendan, kind of like the dungeon masters or rule enforcers of of like a system that they are only incidentally a part of and that they they don't just like torture people and take them to hell. You seek out the Cenobites because in the case of Frank, you are a sex warlock uh, attempting to unlock heretofore un, un, unexperienced heights of pleasure and uh, erotic yeah. intensity. Which is an old, which could be perceived as an older trope of, you know, the Faustian deal, like, you know, the, yeah. the, the demon or the devil is just playing fair, you know, uh, technically speaking, because you made a deal. But but they announced themselves to what's her name? Christy? Is that Christy, her name yes. in the movie? Christy, yeah. They announced themselves to her as angels to some and demons to others. And they aren't the villains of the piece. The, no. vi- the and the we can talk or reference at the end maybe of of this, you know, the the many sequels. They're not villains, they're a force. They're like an implacable yes. force of the universe, like gravity. 
but like what they do it's like yeah. if you if you fall out of a window because you trip and you know go through a you know plate glass window or whatever gravity isn't evil it just connects you with the the floor at a high velocity where and the Cenobites yeah. are exactly like that the evil in the movie is Julia and Frank yes and yes. and and they are they are simply collecting a debt that you know Frank that Frank owes them uh, he's supposed to be in hell forever and he slipped out and that's why they're there. And Christy is possibly going to be collateral damage. But when she says, I can get you f- this guy you're looking for, they don't just say, oh, well, we're evil demons. So we're going to gobble you up. They go, OK, go go get him for us and you and we'll spare you. Even more interesting, which I think that they are their own like independent actors and they have their own ulterior motives, is that the one girl Cenobite says, <laughs> um, what if we prefer you instead? And yeah. it's this like also like more gay like overtones just injected in. And later on, when they get when they finally get Frank, all the other Cenobites are in that room torturing him and like t- dragging him back to hell. Yep. And which we can assume is a very fun thing for Cenobites to do. But the girl Cenobite is outside and she's like why don't you come with us too? And it's like, they are just bringing her because this girl sent They're just going to try to bring her because this girl Cenobite is like, has this like love fixation on her and wants to show her the pleasures and pain of the other dimension. Pin, pinhead or lead Cenobite as he's credited in the first film, um, before he becomes, you know, more iconic. Uh, he's, he has to kind of calm, calm calm her down because yes. she, she says what if we prefer you and he goes look anyway we're talking about frank <laughs> anyways we need to hear it from his his voice let's keep it on topic i think another you know. good indic- i think another strong indication for like a a gay reading of hellraiser is in the naming conventions of the cenobites where you've got you know pinhead who's lead cenobite but you know let's be honest that's pinhead then you've got the one with his like lips peeled back the chatterer the one whose teeth Chatter. are always yeah. clack clack clacking and then there's the sort of matt iglesias looking cenobite you know but butterball Butterball. Butterball. And then the lady Cenobite <laughs> is just credited as female Cenobite. Just afterthought. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know that um, in the original book, um, Pinhead is explicitly a transgender woman? Yes. Uh, no, and, Which and, is crazy. And, and, yeah, like, it, like in, in the book, in the, in, the, in the novella it's based on, you find out that the Cenobites are a, a religious sect in hell known as the Order of the Gash. That have like all become like fully uh, androgynous or like uh, transsexual in some way, and they have like created like new orifices for the, like surgically to like alter their bodies and things like that. Well, they they definitely have some orifices on display. Uh, the the female cinnamite has her neck throat, opened up, a very vaginal throat yeah. injury. <laughs> That's- yeah, they, which is great. And there's a great bit with that where everywhere she goes, there's like a kind of wheezing because because her throat is fully opened up. And that's yes. her sort of like uh, signature, um, you know, uh, tell. But uh, the, yeah, I mean, the, the the Cenobites are great. I love how how restrained they're 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 used in this movie. And as the sequels go on, I like to okay. I'd have to rewatch it. But as the sequels go on, you know, and boy, there's just many many sequels that come after this, <laughs> yeah. and they're they're all pretty much terrible after you know two. Uh, um, I know. I, 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 I will correct you, Brendan. The most recent Hellraiser remake is good because there is a character named after me. 
Yes, that's true. <laughs> There's a character I, I named Will Menneker. There's a character named Menneker in the new Hellraiser. It is actually oh. a woman. It is the lawyer. It is the lawyer who like arranges for the 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 sex pervert. Uh, like she's she's the sex pervert's lawyer, and she's played by Logan Roy's <laughs> wife from Succession. Oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah. a boss. I'm a boss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that, that 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 is cool, and I haven't seen the remake, but uh, but all those like you know Hellraiser in space and Hellraiser blood blood line or whatever you know the all, the endless sequels. That's when they they kind of you know are cheapened uh, to the point of being you know uh, franchise mascots. But in this one, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's wonderful how they're sort of amoral and and apolitical uh, concerning the proceedings. You know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you both. Uh, the scene in this movie when I first saw it that like rended my mind with like the shock of the image and like how uncomfortable it made me feel, but also enthralled by like just how original a vision of horror and monstrosity and kind of hell this movie was presenting. Like just like how I never really experienced something like that before. It's in the very beginning of the movie, where like after Frank has been torn apart by the Cenobites, he opened the box and is just shredded by them. And we see like in the house, it like it takes you up the staircase into the attic where his body has been rendered into bits. Um, and it shows you like the filth and and kind of like de- the decay of this house with like roaches and like just the disgusting like cigarette butts rats. and rotten food and rats. Yeah. And then it gets up to the attic and you see like all of the hooks dangling from the ceiling. And then the floor is just covered with like it's like a slaughterhouse. And it's the image of like in addition to all the hooks in like the centerpiece of the room, there is like like an obelisk of black obsidian hanging from the ceiling and on it are nailed just different like chunks of his body. And it was that image that I found so singularly upsetting and, but also like fascinating and kind of beautiful that like this movie, I knew I was on a different level with this movie. It's so good. And it's like, and some of his body parts are like still moving a little bit, like twitching. It's like, Oh, he's still alive during the it's like fuck. And that kind of forces you to think of like, what would that feel like to just be a million different <laughs> body parts, like completely separated? And that's like something that the Cenobites they they always say like what what they're going for is like, you know, uh boundless uh pleasure and pain and like you know, beyond what exists in our realm. So it's like feelings that go beyond, you know, what what's possible for humans. And yep. we see a lot of the pain, but like, it's that S&M, like, you know, melding of like pain and pleasure that really lies at the heart of the movie. And it's why, like, if you took all the sex out of this movie, the they would just be like nothing because it would be like a blank screen because like it's the sex is the like, you know, the harm and the like killing and the, the torture and maiming and like S and M elements. And like I, which is why I think it's like really at its core, you could see this movie as a movie about a, a gay man who is kind of, enthralls this woman to bring him men to have sex with yes. <laughs> in t- like because like, like yeah bring him men to like fuck and kill because because it, it, it's, it's at once a a cuckolding narrative it, it is yes. also a cautionary tale in the julia character of what good dick will do to you 
Like the like yes. like the limit. Like what you, what you will do to yourself in the name of get, getting good dick is is a cautionary tale in this movie. But but has like you you also said the scenes where Julia starts bringing home men for skinless Frank to reconstitute his body with is so funny to me because like, okay, it's like the classic cuckolding thing. He like Frank's is even watching from the closet, but then like after she kills him with a hammer, he like sticks his hands, like his fingers in their throats and he sucks their shit dry. He's like, don't w- turn <laughs> don't around. Watch. Don't look. Don't look. Don't said, look. This don't isn't look for you. Come to daddy. I, and like in connection with that, that's why I think, that is like the most explicit. The scene that really makes this the most explicit is the scene where Christy catches him. And it's like, first, this strange man who is a drained corpse, like, Aha! comes out of this doorway. It's Alan Partridge. And, and then he, and then skinless Frank comes out and he's like, Christy, it's me, Frank. It's your uncle Frank, and it's yep. basically like a a girl catching her uncle having gay sex. <laughs> it's like, don't worry, and it's just it's, me, your uncle. <laughs> yeah, and then like after that, it cuts to her like wandering the streets, completely traumatized. <laughs> and, like, it's like so one to one and crazy, and like you know, it's it's so amazing. I and, love and it. It's just we're papering over the other uh, the other element, which is there's a giant penis demon as well in 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 the yes. crevice of the of the oh, hospital. Yes, uh, it course. is the most phallic, the most the most phallic looking demon you've ever seen, uh, and it chases yes. her. And you know, it has a curve and everything. Yeah, really. <laughs> it's got veins. It's angry. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's like whether it's the uh, the the cock monster chasing Christie through the like bowels of hell that like is just you know sort of opens in the uh, the hallway. Uh, sorry, the uh, in the wall of the hospital, or in, in Julia. Like I think in like the there is a, like a sort of gothic doubling or contrast between Kirsty and Julia. Like Kirsty, and like I interpret that she loses her virginity in this movie, and there's a, like there's that very beautiful dream sequence where she's like in some sort of church sepulcher and sees like a body shrouded in white and everything's covered in like feathers and down in the air and then right like starting at the crotch of the body it begins to like soak up blood and like the the white shroud becomes soaked in blood and she wakes up from that nightmare i interpret that as like like the anxiety dream she has after losing her virginity so we have her and the most the most like edible part too is that she pulls the sheet up and it's her like dad. deformed maimed f- dead father yeah <laughs> and then she wakes up and like calls her dad to make sure he's okay <laughs> and so like in, in Kirsty, you have like you know she's she's sort of the heroine of the movie she's the innocent young girl but becoming a woman in this movie and then in Julia you have like the kind of monstrous feminine the kind of like a woman whose sexuality has curdled into something terrible and evil yeah um, but we, let, let's talk about let's talk about the two stars of this movie, which are Julia and Larry. Julia, played by Claire Higgins, and Larry, by one of Brendan and I's, one of our guys. You know, like yep. for, you know, like if, if you're like us, part of movie mindset is like movies are kind of like sports. If you're a nerd, and you got the guys you root for, you know their number, you know all their stats, and for me. The, the cuckold, the cuck of the year. If you look up cuckold in a dictionary, they should give you a picture of Larry Cotton, played by the great Andrew Robinson. 
who uh, fans of Movie Mindset might remember as the Scorpio Killer from Don Siegel's Dirty Harry. He's also in Don Siegel's Charlie Varick. Um, he's in uh, Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. He's just one of these guys that's in a ton of, a lot of 80s and 90s, like 90s movies, usually playing a villain. But for me, he will always be the one, the only, Elim Garrick from Deep Space Nine, the simple Cardassian <laughs> Taylor. Uh, yeah, the the... They are brutal to this character in, in this film. <laughs> it's amazing, yes. It's really from, incredible. From the very beginning, he he is just so pathetic, earns no respect. Clearly his wife is is long ago lost interest. And but he's sort of like this aw shucks kind of like we 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 can pick up the pieces if we buy this house, you know, buying a house to save the marriage or whatever. And then <laughs> at least it's better than he, Brooklyn. They yeah, should on, they should on Brooklyn, line, Brooklyn like done multiple times in this movie. They're like, well, yes, it's, I'd rather absolutely. be in, I'd rather be in the the gash dimension than Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> but in the very beginning, he's moving with with, with the movers who are who are openly ogling oh. his wife in front of him. Uh, yes, and, and, and he, they're also gay guys. Clearly, one of them is so gay. <laughs> He has the earring on the gay ear. Literally. Yeah, he does. Uh, but 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 they're moving a mattress, and I actually really it always gets me as kind of a nasty uh, a nasty if if small piece of violence where he talk about gash he he gashes his hand on the on a nail that's poking out of um yeah like, the like tears uh, staircase his hand open yeah he tears it open and so he has to and so you're like okay he's you know you think you're going to come back to him and he's wrapping it up. But no, the next time you see him, he's covered in blood, stumbling toward his wife going, uh, help me. I, I cut my hand. You know me in blood. And it's it's literally to- like limp wristedly wandering towards his wife with his face turned away in his eyes like Mr. Burns if he cut his hand <laughs> yes. to Smithers basically well, is what it reminded me kind of. of both Smithers and Mr. Burns uh, but <laughs> yes. yeah yes, he really is <laughs> and, uh, but, and Andy Robinson is just like the, the biggest like chump beta in this movie and like before he gashes his hand open with on the nail sticking out from the uh, staircase it's like the movers are there they're ogling his wife they have like not even attempted to move this mattress up the stairs and they're like oh can i get a beer and then his wife is like sure have some of our beer and then looks at him and then larry just goes sure i guess i'll get it and then he comes back he's like here guys here's your beer and then they're like is that your daughter you know they're like they just like no every cuts they're there for literally it implies that they've been there for like an hour just standing there with the like mattress because then his daughter shows up and is like hey dad what's with the mattress on the stairs and he's like oh i'm just waiting for these guys and they start hitting on the daughter too and they're just like totally cucking him on all fronts he's fighting a two-front cucking <laughs> yeah, war yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like the hitler of being cucked <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's you. You pointed this out, Will. Though that it's it's great casting because Andrew Robinson does have an undercurrent of rage to him. Oh, yeah. that you can see in his eyes in this movie. But there's a very deliberate moment that I forgot about, where at this point Julia has become immune to the violence she was initially squeamish about because she's murdered like three guys to to so that Frank could suck them off. And uh, yeah. so now they're watching. They're watching boxing. I love and, that scene. I and, love and that And he part. says to her, "Like I, I thought, you always hated this stuff. Like you could, you, you didn't like watching this stuff. And now she's like, I've seen worse. But but he, <laughs> but he. Uh, there's a moment where he gets up and he's kind of like he's like pantomiming you know, boxing. Yeah. He's going like, yeah, yeah. Because he does have the movie is is it's not incidental. The movie is is making it clear he's repressing a lot of. Um, 
you know, sh- probably anger and shame and self-loathing because he knows he's a loser and that his wife thinks he sucks. Yeah. I Another thing about Larry that I think is very interesting and explicit is at the very beginning, when he first gets to the house with Julie, she's like, um, he the house is decorated with like hundreds of like religious statues covered in like Christmas lights. And it's very like gaudy and tacky and like very, you know... Um, I don't know, not like, I, I think it's like this, this idea of like, it's, it's like a symbol of Frank living there is like a kind of crazy, like on the edge guy. And then what they do is they're like, um, they take all that shit out and like throw it away. And then the next like big centerpiece um, home decor that you see over and over and over again throughout the movie is one of those posters you can get at like Pier One. For like Will a William Carlos Williams like thing in Chicago or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. that is just like hung on the stairs and it's like it's it's this like replacement of like you know crazy like 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 like, like statues of saints and martyrs with their like eyes carved out and covered in Christmas lights yes. and like they replace that with yes. like the blandest fucking like home decor. And uh, has red a, home decor. And before that, it's really funny when they're like looking at the absolute like detritus and filth that Frank has left in this house of like all his spooky religious stuff and like just roaches coursing through some rotten turkey carcass or something. And then like yes. he's saying to Julia, he's going like, "We've got to let Kirsty see this. She'll she's really gonna love this place." Like referring yeah, to we his can't do a thing to it <laughs> yeah. until Kirsty sees this. And like he's referring to the uh, his his insane brother's like fuck and torture dungeon that he just inherited. <laughs> and you know, like, actually, like inheritance is another huge like trope in British Gothic horror. It's like inheriting the yeah. family estate. And in this movie, it's oh, like yeah. their grandmother's house that Frank like you know uh, it looks like a shooting gallery but he's doing it for the Cenobite stuff instead of drugs. Something something about where they, they're like, oh, I guess this is where he slept. And it's this just rancid looking pillow and uh, sheets with, you know, the kind of in, the indentation of, of, of where Frank would always sleep. But it's just inside of the indentation. It's all brown and it like Our really male living spaces. <laughs> That's what I said. That's what I said last night to Catherine. He just needed, um, he just needed like to have like a, like a TV and like a PlayStation set up on like a milk crate right at the at the with, foot yeah, of, with his, of his going. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a PS5. But I love the reason that the brother knows that it's Frank's like place because the um, Julie immediately is like sw- squatters, and the brother sees this weird like um, porcelain kind of like uh seems like a parody of one of those um precious moments what's the yeah precious it's like moments, a hummel like figurine dolls. Yeah. yeah a hummel thing of like um a man like fucking a woman doggy style or <laughs> yeah. someone fucking someone in the yeah. ass and he's yeah. like oh no it's frank that's our frank <laughs> that's like, yeah now, uh, speaking of uh, ass fucking, I seem to remember from the novella that like the Julia character is like this like frigid prude until she meets Frank, and then like Frank essentially like turns her into his sex slave by sodomizing her, and like he just turns her yes. out instantly. And Hesse, you brought it up. I love the visual contrast between Frank and Larry as brothers. 
like with like yeah. in the flashbacks where Julia's remembering how she started her affair with Frank, as you mentioned, like he she opens the door and it's raining out and he's just like he's just there wet going, Hi, I'm Frank. And he's got like a he's just like the the he is the dictionary definition if you look up dark and like dark, sexy bad boy. And his brother yep. is yeah. the beta bitch made cook. Yep. He's like if you look up gay hustler in the in the dictionary, <laughs> yeah. be like literally it's it's like you would see him in in a restaurant with like a woman who's like you know a hundred years old and he would be like winking at the waiter or something literally and it's so funny it's so beautiful him like going into this house and he's just so horny and so sex insane but that he gets into the house and he's like the flashback scene where it's like julia meeting him or I mentioned it before, but he it's like the opening of a gay porn when he's at the door with his arm up, like, hey, I'm here I'm to clean Frank. the pool. I'm the I'm the brother. <laughs> Do you mind if I come in? I'm a toast to the happy couple. And then he like holds up his bottle. Like five words in, he's like she's ready to fuck yeah. because he's so like I'm your new stepbrother. And the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but we actually we only see him and it's important to understand why she was uh, mesmerized by him with those flashbacks but for the rest of the movie um he is a skull-faced you know uh weak skeleton basically in the corner uh in what i was i i had forgotten was just excellent makeup where he's not quite a skeleton because that would look sort of corny he's got like sinew and muscles and he keeps getting a little bit he keeps you know glowing up throughout the movie but but basically and he starts wearing like suits over his uh oh bleeding God. skin but, yeah. but he's but but he's but he's basically you know he looks like a, a a horrible monster um and it makes it even more kind of uh, bizarre and nightmare like that she's so she's so crazy about this you know ghoul uh, sauntering man. around this mucus yeah, and muscle yeah. man yes and an I actual think, monster I, she's in love with an actual monster yes. i think it should be noted that um sexy uh, gay rent boy frank and skinless frank are portrayed by two different actors Yes. Uh, normal Frank <laughs> is portrayed by Sean Chapman and skinless Frank and for, slash Frank the monster is played by Oliver Smith. And they're both, both really great performances, but I also, actually incredible. Another detail I love is this, is that the family is, is the cotton family. And I just like to imagine Senator Tom cotton is actually a blood and cum homunculus <laughs> made out of the, out of, out of the seed <laughs> and of the seed of all the operators who died in Iraq and <laughs> Afghanistan. RIP yes. bless them. They're, they're in the gash dimension now. Well, <laughs> That actually that actually tracks because the the very first thing in the movie is um, a hilarious portmanteau of two um, incredible um, of two incredible cliches where it is a um, uh, Eastern style Chinese style uh, salesman a la yeah. gremlins Bizarre. inside of a inside of a, a Middle Eastern style bazaar <laughs> a la Exorcist <laughs> one yeah. And yep. it's like so. This like the idea of like both of those things like uh, the confluence is so funny. This is where you can drop the the the, the Simpsons clip of of Homer uh, haggling <laughs> yeah. for the uh, monkey yeah. paw. Yeah, what is this thing? It is a monkey's paw dating back to Alal bin Abdallah. It has the power to grant wishes to its owner. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I uh, has to that like that very first opening scene of Frank purchasing the lament configuration from the Middle Eastern slash Asian salesman is like of them doing the transaction. You see two men with the dirtiest fingernails I have ever seen. 
That's what I mean is that this movie, like, it just foregrounds filth and disgust from the very first shot of the movie. Like, the, their fingernails are so gross, it drives me insane. And detail, attention to detail. Also, I knew you would pick up on that. <laughs> I was like, no. I've heard you mention dirty fingernails before, and I was like, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a. I guess like I don't have like a a thing about uh, cuticle cleanliness or whatever. But man, it's just like it's just the dirt and grime under there. It's just like black rims yeah. on every one of their fucking it's, fingers. It looks like it's on purpose. Like you, it looks like you literally couldn't have fingernails. Yeah, like they just took a pencil. Trying. They just like ran a pencil under each nail, you know, and just let yes, the, absolutely let the entirety be, become dark and black. So we, uh, I, I talked about the the prospect of Senator Tom Cotton being a homunculus constituted out of the blood and jizz of our fallen service members, <laughs> but we got to talk about the Frank body reconstituting itself scene out of the floor of the attic. Oh my God. Cause like, this is truly again, one of those like singular spectacular moments in both just like a gore set piece and practical effects in a horror movie. This is a true, just a masterpiece. Like that scene, it, the birth scene is just like, so it's totally original and it's also like strangely beautiful and like harrowing at the same time. It's it's, the, the, the presence of like the clear, not just blood, but like the the clear viscous fluid is really like something that has always stuck with me. Like for so long of being like, you know, just the you can like almost smell it through the TV. <laughs> it's like disgusting for me. It's the um, it's the shot because you see his lung or his um, his rib cage and and you know his arms, which is great. The first thing you see is two two you know arms come out of the 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 floorboards but but for me it's it's this like really smooth um sphere that you start to realize is his skull and then you just see little folds of the brain starting to come in and then you see like a full brain and uh, it i don't know it just feels like it's treating it's treating the like the idea of an actual you know muscular and and skeletal reconfiguration about as 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 literally as possible but but those effects just they just cannot be beat it you feel it and it's tactile and it sells it completely yeah it's real as fuck and i think like the the closest analog to the makeup effects in this movie i would say like an american werewolf in london yeah is the transformation is very much akin to the griffin dunn character in that movie's like slow decay the more he's talked to because there's also like the little touches that you always that you recognize is like the the little space inside Frank's throat is the same as you can see that it's the same as the space inside of the female Cenobite's throat because that's just what like the inside of a throat looks like and you know the the shininess and like mucus kind of hanging off of his body and like the the nerves when he first is like his second incarnation it's so much detail and so much like loving attention to detail of this like insane like skull man who this woman is like weirdly in love with because he's so sexy even as a <laughs> crazy gore monster we should we should shout out that the the the, the person who who did the makeup was a guy named bob keen and he was, as they all were, in his mid twenties when he did all this. Somehow, like the guy who's thing, fucking Orson uh, Welles of this shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he he had worked on Jim Henson stuff um, and Star Wars <laughs> and things like that, which it actually does make sense because the Jim Henson stuff, you know, it's like quite advanced puppeteering and 
you know, and, and design. But then, of course, he went on to use it for um, perverted uh, sex demon stuff. I mean, yes. and like, many such cases, honestly. Yes. I mean, the, like, I, I, like the, he, had, he had a special effects team doing like the, the makeup and effects, but like the beauty of how spectacularly that scene comes off, it just stresses again that like Clive Barker was a complete amateur when he made this movie. I mean, there's a story like he wanted to direct it because he was not satisfied with how previous TV and film adaptations of his work had turned out. And when they wanted to option the Hellbound Heart, he was like, okay, I'll do it if you let me direct. And they were like, the studio was like, okay, like, have you ever directed a movie? Do you know how to direct a movie? And he was like, yeah, sure. And like, he just bluffed his way through it. And they believed him and gave him the money. And there's a famous story about him going out that same day after the meeting, going to a bookstore and buying a book like How to Make Movies for Dummies. Um, what so what cool. is a camera? How does um, it work? It's like, like another big point of, of, uh, of, of difference between him and Stephen King. Sorry, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my God. Clive absolutely. went out there and winged it and made one of the greatest horror films of all time on his first try. And Stephen King not only wouldn't shut the fuck up about The Shining being bad, but then made a horrible six-hour miniseries or wrote it. He didn't direct it, but when he did direct something, it was Maximum Overdrive and, you know, that's another uh, story. Cocaine the movie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he. I mean, he managed to do Night of the Living Dead with cars instead of people. Yes. And he did manage to blind his director of photography in one of the yes. famous movie accidents on set. Maybe he should have read uh, the yeah. the uh, directing for he dummies. He read the lawnmower repel, that how to manual. Talk about the lawnmower <laughs> yes. man. He's not the lawnmower man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I, I just want to maximum yeah. overdrive. Terrible movie, but has possibly one of the funniest opening five to ten minutes of a movie yes. ever. It's fun. Oh my god! Yeah. But just Absolutely. on just just on the point of the Frank scene, but then as a general. Um, as a general point as well, the, the soundtrack, the score by Christopher Young oh, yeah. is something I definitely wanted to mention because it is, I love a minimal horror score. We all love our, our John Carpenter and our Goblin or whatever. There's, there's great stuff that happened in the eighties around the more kind of, uh, synthesizer or, or minimalist driven scores, but th Christopher Young swings for the fences. It's that lush, almost traditional, um, like we said before, kind of Gothic, uh, haunted it's theme. I think it's romantic, of, very romantic, uh, it's very style. sweeping and lush. Yeah. And, yes. and it, it just, it fits the movie perfectly. And it actually clarified for me, we can talk about this in our exorcist three section, but, uh, two very different approaches. Uh, whereas William Peter Blatty opted for almost no music in his film, his uh, adaptation of his own work. Uh, Clive Barker, I think had a very, and, and that works great. Clyde Barker had yeah. the opposite approach that also was perfect for this movie, which was a really muscular and strong score with a theme and with, like you said, a well, kind of like a neo-romantic flavor to it that sells the kind of uh, Lovecraftian uh, atmosphere of 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 the uh, of the Hellraiser stuff. My my favorite part in the score is there's one part where it's slightly different from the rest of the score where. The music kind of takes the back seat and it, it, it is just like one scary kind of orchestral like mode kind of just being repeated. And it's the part where um, uh, Kirsty opens up the lament configuration after, after she's run through um, the hallway, been chased by the penis monster and comes back into the hospital room. And it's, I think, maybe my favorite scene in the movie because it's the first time you see, like, an accounting of all the Cenobites 
But the atmosphere in that scene, it cuts from like the bricks in the wall, Mm. um, the spaces between the bricks, this like yellow light and smoke just starts like pouring out between them. And it shows like an IV bag and it's getting back filled with blood until it explodes. Oh, that's such a good like simple but terrifying image of the blood working its way back up through the IV into the fucking like the, the catheter, the bag, the IV bag. Yes. And then it shows like a TV and it's like, um, you know, flowers blooming. the TV is showing time lapses of flowers blooming and it's so beautiful. But between the time lapses, there's this like static and um, whenever it's static, there's this almost like this synthesizer type sound of just like, um, it sounds like a bird being killed or something like, or like dozens of birds being killed and it in combination with this like pulsing like very simple part of the the score that's like just the bass part of the score it just combines to form this like um almost avant-garde like singular moment that that i think really doesn't lose any of the romanticism but also is like a perfect perfect introductory salvo to like the the arrival of the Cenobites yep. for the first time in a in full company. And I think like what, what we were just talking about with like this kind of lush romantic very tradition more traditional horror score it's like the marriage of that is like it's similar to like the marriage of these other elements that we're talking is that like it preserves the yeah like the the gothic romance and mystery of an earlier era of horror films while just directly showing you like things that you've never seen before like Serge created orifices and like like you know latex leather s&m horror on a level that's never been made explicit in a movie before but like it but like it does that with this very like uh old-fashioned backdrop to everything so like yep. like the, the, the characters the plot itself and this kind of yeah like the sweeping emotion of like the the lushness of the score um really underscores like as i think you put it perfectly like the mystery of this movie is i think what makes it so fascinating and so powerful and and yeah. I and I also don't think I mean it's it, it's not to say that I mean we would know definitively but I think the movie needed that kind of classiness to it in the form of 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 that of the score because it 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 sort of um legitimizes you know music can can actually for, for for a lot of people, if you if they hear like a really well done score in the opening moments of a film, it's almost like they can buy in immediately because it sounds, you know, like what they expect to hear. And I think if they had gone the more minimal eighties route, it would have been harder to get people to to stay for this pretty original vision. So he yeah, he, he sort of knew that much that you know you, you got to wow them a little bit with the with the classic Hollywood uh, score. That's part of why I think a lot of Cronenberg movies work as well as they oh do, yeah the Howard that, all the Howard Shore original yeah, original yeah, scores Howard that are that are Shore, so yeah. like uh, sort of melancholy and beautiful and heartbreaking yes. yeah and no it's it's that it's that marriage like I said of a of a gothic horror that was like existed in a world governed by Christian morality and its marriage to a modern world depicted by Clive Barker in which like Christian morality is replaced by like beyond good and evil like there is no good and evil there is only experience and the circumstance which gives rise to them and that like pleasure and pain yeah exactly that there are two sides of the same coin and it is that like yeah it's that marriage of this like the old and new horror that comes together so beautifully in this movie and that's why this movie is like still works people still think about Pinhead like they're still remaking Hellraiser movies the power of this movie is like hits just as hard uh, now we've said we've said beyond a couple times and I have to think of from beyond 
as a similar. <laughs> it's it's a goofier. It's a goofier. It's, a funny, uh, it's the funny version of Hellraiser. It basically is because they go away to a dimension in which there is only pain and pleasure and and delights of the debauched flesh or whatever and that's what what is his name dr praetorius dr praetorius uh, yeah uh that, that, that that's the what message from beyond that, oh, oh you got oh from oh, well, that next year next yeah. year we're gonna do the Stuart gordon <laughs> lovecraft movies do a do, do a Stuart gordon uh reanimator uh from beyond double feature because um it, it's especially from beyond it's dealing i don't was from beyond before or after probably before hellraiser don't you think well let me look because it's it's just oh brian usna yeah yeah it's the yeah uh, it's before one it's year before one year before wow that's why i think of hellraiser as kind of a, a lovecraftian um you know flavored piece is because as we've been talking about it 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 says that there's there's gods out there that are not operating on the uh morality yes. that we ascribe to gods you know Yes. And so From Beyond is a more slapstick, but also a really good version of, of, of that story. Also, some of the best gore ever done is yes. in From Beyond. It's Brian Yenza. Yes. Um, I, I suppose we should talk. I, I do want to talk about um, Claire Higgins as Julia. Yes. I mean, like, because she, to me, is yes. really like the, the heart of the movie. Like, she is both like a hero and villain in a way. I mean, like she's she, the protagonist she for the first so half. The action. She, yeah. For the first half of the movie, she is the main character. I would say even more that like for most of the movie, she really is like it really the the structure is um, that's another very, you know, romantic era, like literature thing about the structure is that the, the protagonists yes. are like, you know, the protagonist isn't the good guy necessarily. It's just someone in love. And then there is another protagonist who is younger, who's acting out of love of a different way, who is acting out of love for her father. More innocent, who, more innocent person. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, you know, there, there is a tragic nature to Julia's character. And, like, Claire Higgins' performance is just as good as Andrew Robinson's. Oh, yeah. And, like, Andrew Robinson gets to have a little bit more fun with it, especially when Frank takes his skin and he gets to switch and finally, yes. and finally be a villain, which is what Andy Robinson... That's why you hire Andy Robinson. And he slays he when get, he does that. Oh, my it's, God. The scenes, even scarier than oh, normal Frank. The scene where she, where she comes in and she's like, Dad, I was so worried about you. And he's like, it'll be all right, Kirsty. I love you. And you can see the flesh on his face, like, yes. at, like the edges, like peeling off his fucking skull. Yeah. Well, oh. when he finally, when he says... Come to daddy come in to his, daddy. in her dad's skin. That is yes. about as fucked up as you get. And when she like she's it's so horrifying. Has like similar to American Werewolf in London, another great gore effect I love in that movie is when Kirsty claws his face and then like it gouges out like uh like claw marks in his like recently yes. pressed on flesh, and you see the ribbons of skin hanging off dangling his cheek, dangling off his the whole cheek. Time. Oh. Yes, Griffin done in the movie theater when it's yes. dangling from his neck. Claw, yeah. And, and also <laughs> also it's very simple and it's really not even an effect it's just really good sound design but when she leaves the room and he looks in the mirror and he just kind of pokes his eye around a little bit because yes all, all he's he's back in place yeah, yeah you, you can do that right now you know like yourself but the uh, sound listen, that they put this. in the the the, <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> 
the squelching that, that they put in to suggest that like something's not right in there is just really effective and it's a great little touch. Yes, it's amazing. But uh, in, in terms of Claire Higgins, Claire Higgins like yes. uh, as as portraying this kind of the, the monstrous feminine to use like a you know grad school uh, terminology to discuss this, but like there is a definitely a tragic dimension to her character because she does she like she turns to evil out of out of love, out of, out of a, a love and obsession with Frank, but like Frank really disses her and like look Julia is evil she kills people she's going to try to kill Kirsty at the end of the movie but like when it really comes down to it Frank sells her out and just yep. he sucks her shit to get to get yes. to get right again yep he's gay he doesn't care about yeah. her <laughs> see, see Hessa that, that is the thing is like I mean you know I'm sure Frank defies categorization ultimately but I mean yeah. he's definitely not just a, a typical like you know hot hot straight guy brother that you know is is operating on that level he he ditches her uh, immediately as soon as he's either chasing Kirsty up the stairs or he wants to go get a little pinhead dick or you know what, what, whatever he, yeah. is on the menu accidentally stabs her when trying to stab Kirsty, and she's like not me and he's like does not even flinch he's just like sorry baby <laughs> i think yeah, he, he says it's nothing personal or something boy. like that yeah. he's just like well i mean now that the knife's in you i'm just gonna take your i'm gonna take your uh your bones or your, or your, your, your blood now. Um, but yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm looking to see if I wrote it down. Instead I have in my notes, Frank kills Julia because he is gay. And <laughs> gay. <laughs> there you and, go. Um, I guess like, uh, as a movie like works to the, it works to its uh, unforgettable climax with uh, Andy Robinson delivering the shortest sentence in the Bible. A little trivia trivia yes. fact for you. But like, mm. what I want to talk about is okay. We mentioned um, earlier in the movie, Larry um, tears his hand open on a nail that's sticking out of uh, the staircase as they attempt to move the uh, the mattress up into the bedroom. There is, of course, Pinhead, whose entire head is just like a latticework of, you know, nails stuck into his head. There is the scene where uh, the skinless Frank crucifies rats in the attic by nailing them to the wall. There is the repeated yes. invocation of nails in this movie. And I think that works on a number of levels because, one, there's the obvious uh, Christ reference to the, you know, like the, the torments of Christ on the cross being crucified. Mm -hmm. But like to me, also like, the body parts nailed to the obsidian uh, yes. thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, but to me, I think like in, in, in back to like back to Barker and this like the movie's sadomasochistic gay perversion to me, like the imagery of the nail is just all about penetration. And it actually brings to mind something that uh, the Gemini killer says in Exorcist 3 when he says, you don't understand in this reality, we have to we have to touch each other through bodies and nervous systems like on this side, yes. we need bodies to connect with other people and to experience what they feel like. And to me, like the, the imagery of the nail or a nail being driven in or a nail tearing apart flesh is just, you know, like once again, the subtext being made textual and that Pinhead himself is like the Cenobites are like kind of gods of the penetrative act, the, the, the violence, the pleasure and pain of sex, of having your body uh, sort of yeah, be penetrated by another person's body, like to, to feel someone else inside you. Yes. And then get y your uh, entire body ripped by 800 chains uh, all at the same time so that you explode yes. in oh, front of your knees. Just talk it's, about it's such... It's such, wait, I, I, before we move on very quickly, it's like this thing that I think is like 
one of my favorite lines in this entire movie in which I think Frank is describing like having gay sex for the first time to Kirstie and it's just like, sometimes you have to endure the pain to get to the pleasure. <laughs> yes. It's like, truly like, oh like that, that makes it all this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. You got to commit. You got to commit one way or the yes. other. Yeah. Um, this is definitely a, an example of, of horror uh, allowing for things that would not normally be allowed to be explored in a mainstream film uh, because of yes. the, the, the sheen of, of, you know, mystical genre stuff. It's the edge case of our times, I Indeed. think. And like, it used to be film noir, but now right. that permission, now that movies are more permissive, it's, it's, it has to be, you know, horror, yep. I think. So the, the beautiful denouement of this movie is that like, you know, uh, Kirsty has become aware. And I, I suppose I should talk about uh, Kirsty for a second. Uh, Kirsty is played by Ashley Lawrence. Uh, this is her first and hopefully last movie. But uh, <laughs> Kirsty, I mean, like it's, it's she's just kind one. of an afterthought. It, her character works because she is a beautiful young teenage girl that like represents yeah. innocence and kind of is the heroine of the movie. But also, but like you know, she's there to be the uh, the hot woman who is terrified. Like because that's horror movies promise yes. you seeing a hot woman in in torment or in peril. Horror movies, they have to, when they end, um, a woman has to be traumatized for the rest of her life. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. There, there are a couple moments where the, the, the strings are showing a bit with, with her, with her performance. But I, but I will say there are others where I'm, I'm actually pretty impressed at how she is selling uh, the uh, particular, like the scene with the Cenobites. I think she's actually pretty good at, you know, successfully portraying someone who is accepted that this is all real, but as she says at one point, she says something like, Oh, come on. You know, when she's trying to like get out of the hospital room, like I actually think that she's, she's, she's not, she's not in the league of, of Andrew Robinson or, or Claire Higgins, but, but she's, she, she's definitely solid enough for the movie to work. And, um, yes, I think, she and I like good. her, I liked her performance. I like her. I think, yeah. unfortunately they bring I'm her sorry, back I and take like, it back. I, I think unfortunately <laughs> they they bring her back in like Hellraiser eighteen and it's it's you know a, a kind of a a sad um, you know paycheck maybe but uh, in this one you know she's she's definitely she definitely does the job. So uh, the, the the denouement of the film is that you know uh, is that Kirsty has encountered the Cenobites and they want to take her to hell but she's like no like my it's actually my uncle Frank you want like he cheated you out of out of his soul or whatever and i can i can deliver him to you and then like uh frank kills julia he uh, pursues her to the attic and then like but the the cenobites are waiting for him there and he tries to he tries to attack kirsty but their hooks shoot out and grasp every bit of his flesh hessa i wasn't even i totally forgot about this but this is yet another hook based kill I mean the the humble yes. the humble oh my God. the humble fish and meat hook is really the MVP of this season of School v Scream set. That's for sure. Yes, when we do the awards, that has to be. We have to give a hook. <laughs> Make sure um, to do the movie Hook by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Hooks all over it's that a one. Joke. We have to just do <laughs> a children's movie that has no hooks. Actually, completely in it. tear hook apart because no one gets killed by a hook in it. 
<laughs> but yeah, uh, Frank is uh, like every corner of his flesh is being pulled apart by hooks. And like it zooms in on his face. Another incredible gore effect as Andrew Robinson's face is like stretched and pulled to the breaking point. And it's like his, like his face is so wet. And yep. he's just like spitting yes. out of his mouth, but like he's not shrieking in pain. He licks his lips. He licks his yeah. lips. And as she walks out of the door of the attic, he looks at Kirsty and says, My favorite line in the movie, of course, he looks at her. And this is why you hire Andrew Robinson. I must stress this is all about <laughs> Andrew Robinson. The delivery of Jesus wept. And then boom, the hooks shred. It just, it just, he explodes. And it is one of the most satisfying endings and like climaxes of a horror movie ever. Well, that's the thing is if, is if I, if, if there is a criticism, I would say, I think the movie probably should have ended there. Like, you know, that she, she could have delivered him to the demons or the, the Cenobites and then, you know, see this horrible sight and then have some kind of, you know, little, little tinkly music happen. And then she walks out traumatized or whatever. But I think studio or Hollywood pressure means there has to be like, a chase and something else happened at the very end. So, you know, then the, then the Cenobites kind of inexplicably go after her, I guess, because Julia wished before she died, wished on the, on the lament configuration. And then the penis monster shows up again. The butterball Cenobite is felled by a falling two by four. Yeah, yeah, they don't even need the the lament configuration to get rid of the the, the fat He had a completely... he, he had a coronary. He had a massive coronary. Um, <laughs> well, I I would push back on this just a okay. touch okay. because I do love I love one of my very favorite things about the movie is that the female Cenobite is like obsessed with Kirsty, sure, and um, tries to chase her down. And I do think that. I am happy at the destruction of the house after. I think that the house being destroyed It had to go. But I think beyond that, the penis monster, I think, is very unnecessary. Because I think of in a movie where every special effect works, like, so well, I think the the very worst special effect is the penis monster. Yeah. Where when you first see it, you can see literally the person pushing it on a dolly (laughs) in the background. Yeah. And... But only if you've seen this movie a couple times and are looking for it. But I, I really am. Yeah, I, the, the, I do agree that it, and it like, goes and, and, on. And the Cenobites are so perfect and original that like the penis monster looks like it could be another gooey, scary, snarling thing in, in a lot of different horror movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the Lament configuration could have just like zapped the house out of existence after Kirsty ran out or something, you know, so, something like that. Yes. And then I'm kind of agnostic on the on the homeless guy being a, a winged demon. Uh, yeah, the there's a homeless guy throughout the movie that it, one scene in a hilarious moment literally peeks at them out of a box car yep. <laughs> that is just in the middle of the city, I guess. Yeah. And... Yeah, he he turns out to be a bone dragon is the only way I can describe it. Reminded me, <laughs> it reminded me, Will, Will and I recently watched Demon Knight, and he's a yes. lot like Billy Zane at the end of Demon Knight when he reveals his true form. He's a bone dragon. Demon yeah. Knight, by the way, D- Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight absolutely slays. Throw that yes. on your fucking Halloween must-watch yeah. list as well. It's so it's much It's wonderful. Fun. Uh, but yes, I mean, that's a very small criticism. Um, uh... I, I think I actually kind of have a similar issue with Exorcist three horror movies are tough to wrap up because yes. audiences want yeah. a big explosion. But, uh, I mean, still, I mean, it's gotta be a 10 bagger or a five bagger 
Hellraiser because everything in the film it just works so wonderfully. Uh, five bags of popcorn and uh, a, a large cup of sadomasochistic perversion and sodomy on the set, and then and then some hooks in in the popcorn just thrown in to to hook you. Oh, my! Fa- I was gonna mention my um my favorite special effect in this movie is it relates to when Frank gets ripped apart, and they're so detailed and so detail oriented. The special effects in this movie that not only is Frank getting ripped apart and torn apart by these hooks, but he his teeth all of a sudden in just in the last shot are completely fucked up and rotted out. And the attention to detail given paid to the teeth of everyone in this movie is completely incredible. Like the, um, the butterball Cenobite has the sideways teeth where they're just like slightly at like an 80 degree angle kind of in a line. And like the, um, my favorite special effect. And I think the most horrifying special effect and the special effect that the first time I saw this as a kid really stuck with me more than anything is the special effect of the, I think it's the second guy that she kills the oh. second or the first guy that yeah. she kills the, oh, yeah. the second time she hits him with the hammer. Yep. He's begging and he's like, please, yeah. please. Yeah. And his teeth yeah. and lower jaw are so fucked up. And it would have been so like easy to just like, you're just saying they made it on um, his face. Yeah. You're saying they made it very accurate yeah. for the fact that it takes place in England is what you're saying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's the generosity of detail in the gore that truly yes. like puts it on another level. That's why people remember this movie. Is it like, there's not, there's not a single cockroach or like lump of meat missing. And you're right. Like when she hits that guy in the face with a hammer and he's begging for his life, his teeth and lips are hanging off his face because of like the way yes. she hit him in the jaw. It's so horrifying. And, you know, the chittering of rats in the background of every scene in that attic room. And, like, yeah, it's it's just so... Um, it's a perfect movie. It, it, five, it, 10 out of 10. It, it, five it's five. sort of... It, it'd be interesting if, if listeners uh, haven't seen it and they like it. They should obviously have watched it before listening to this. But uh, the, the the sequel is, is worth checking out, I would say. I, I have a feeling... I love to. I have a feeling Levi- if I watch Leviathan it again... Leviathan is very cool. Yeah, I have a feeling if I watched it again, I probably wouldn't like it as much, maybe, because I, I, I do think the more you say about the Cenobites, the less intriguing they become. Uh, obviously, you, know, you could look at it the exact opposite way, of course, but I, I like them in this as no backstory, no origin story. They, they just are. Um, and I think, of course, then when you get into three, it becomes kind of goofy. And but you also get you know bites yeah. with CD players in their skulls, uh, or or whatever. <laughs> so it, you know, probably don't go past three because then it just gets really bad. It's almost like Halloween, where the better the initial movie, the worse the franchise is as a whole. You know, like uh, the Friday thir- the Thirteenth movies, the the franchise as a whole is kind of greater than the sum of its parts, and the original is just okay, and then. I would say that about Child's Play I, is the one I think of as the most consistent. Hessa, franchise. you and I are completely on the same page about Child's Play. I think Child's Play is the best franchise overall. Like I think, and yes. that's another Brad Dorif, uh, you know. Yes, not one. He but actually, says the words Child's Play in uh, yes, Exorcist Three. Yeah, Exorcist Three, and I'm like, he said the line. But but I, I, yeah, I guess. A, uh, there seems to be a rule about how if, if the original movie is, is sort of in a class of its own, the franchise itself is, is not going to be that great. Um, yeah. I think that's the case with Hellraiser at least. 
Well, we can. We, we this is a perfect segue because now we enter the Dorif realm. He has taken possession. The boy had been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside this cell, the killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. Inside a man. Who are you? I am no one. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us! He will never get away! This time you're going to lose. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. We, 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 we turn now to William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. Uh, I mentioned before that I think that this is like, in, in, in a lot of ways, a much scarier movie than The Exorcist, which I recently rewatched. And again, this takes nothing away from The Exorcist. It's one of my favorite movies. The first 20 minutes with Father Marin in northern Iraq is like a perfect short film on its own. Just unbearably full, of, infused with dread. Yeah. Yeah. But as the movie goes on, and I got to say, all the stuff with Reagan and The Exorcism is like unbelievably funny to me, at least now in this point in my life. Yes. Fuck me. And, Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> Stick your cock up her ass, Marin, you faggot. There's a real there's a real phenomena of like, you know, everyone's I think everyone of my generation, their parents always tell them it's the, the scariest. scariest movie of all time is The Exorcist. What's well, a victim? And it's a victim of its you, own success there, yeah. Yeah. Well, we we watch it and we're like, you know, uh this is kind of this is sick, but it's kind of funny. Like when she tells the <laughs> yes. father, "Like your mother sucks cocks in hell." <laughs> yes. It's so funny. That's such a good like line. It's a great <laughs> it's burn. So funny. Uh, the line that yes. I've been saying to myself like for days now after rewatching The Exorcist is when like the uh, the doctor comes in to look at her and she jumps up to the bed, slaps his ass down, and goes, "Keep away! The sow was mine." That's <laughs> classic. <laughs> so it's just comedy. It's a, it's just. You gotta love you gotta love stuff like that. It's as as Brad Dorf says in this movie, it's a little bit of slap. Like, you know, it's, it's the little thing. It's the smiles that keep us going. Yep. Yes. So uh, so like uh Exorcist Three is like, you know, it's the sequel everyone wanted from The Exorcist. Exorcist Two Heretic takes this wild excursion into Africa and locusts. And it's just like, what the fuck's going on with that? As Freakin said. The people who made this piece of shit are in the movie theater now. Yeah, it's it's and, almost it's like a sci-fi movie almost. It's it's Zardos. Yeah, very, yeah it's, it's like a medical John Borman, yeah. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Borman real hit either a hit or the one of the craziest misses of all time. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know the original Exorcist. Obviously, it's like the, the 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 collaboration between William Friedkin, you know, like sort of like tough guy Jewish kid from Chicago, and William Peter Blatty, who's you know like a devout American Catholic. And now we get to Exorcist Three, which is just the pure uncut blat. It's just it's it's blatty up and down. And this is a it's movie blat from you know Gut Cigarder. Yeah, and this is this is a movie that is. 
uniquely terrifying in a way that could only be the product of, at every level of execution, a devout American Catholic. And uh, so I'm glad we have you on the show as someone who was raised Catholic to sort of clue us into all of the evil Catholic magic in this movie. Because yes, this is just yes. every frame of this movie. One of the first things you see in this movie is a statue of Jesus Christ opening its eyes as like a gale force wind blows debris and paper into a church. This, I think, is honest to God. Like, this might be, or not might be, this is my second favorite horror movie of all time besides Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think this movie like is so beautiful and like the the way it's shot the only things i can really compare it to are like these like absolute flash in the bag like um masterpieces of cinematography of like the master or like um like clute you know it's it's so like brilliantly um and thoughtfully like framed and written and it's so like i don't know it's it's very much like a a night of the hunter type scenario with william peter blatty oh yeah it's like charles lawton yeah like i did one movie and it's like the best movie ever made (laughs) it's ridiculous like and and hesse you talk about like the care and the detail and like one of the things that that stuns me every time i watch this movie is his use of foreshadowing and we're going to get to the famous hallway scare. And I talked in last week's yes. episode about the, the locker scare in The Fog and how so much of what like a good effective scare in horror movies is this like creative misdirection and building of tension by showing you what you think you know is coming and then hitting you with like, no, it's not the thing you're actually supposed to be afraid of. What Blatty does, <laughs> yeah, it's way worse. <laughs> what Blatty does in this movie, in terms of like the way he builds the foreshadowing in the first half of the movie, in terms of like the how he frames George C. Scott, like he's showing you what is going to happen later in the movie, thematically, visually, uh, sound editing wise, he is all brilliantly foregrounding shots that like only make sense once you've seen the entire movie. Like the matching of certain moments and shots from beginning and end of this movie is so expertly done. And just the confidence with which he directs every level of this movie is stunning to me. Yeah, it is. It is staggering how good it is uh, from someone who I know the theme of this episode is, you know, an uh, author's turned directors. But the fact that John Borman, who had made many more films made such a stinker deliverance excalibur yeah Yeah. zardoz yeah and william peter blatty who had made one very low budget film in hungary with money from the coca-cola company and the communist hungarian government working together on a project is the ninth (laughs) configuration uh the fact that that was his only venture into directing and then he did this which you know could have been a huge disaster for his own legacy his own his own uh you know work uh and and he as you said will the confidence is is sort of hard to hard to comprehend uh but thankfully he he nailed it it's it's not untainted by you know um certain certain studio uh meddling and aspects yeah. which i'm sure we will um you know if if you watch this movie completely with no context for it and you have certain problems with it and then you like you know i feel like if you you voice those problems, you'll find that they line up exactly to the changes that the studio kind of forced upon um, this movie. But I think um, 
And Brendan recently watched the uh, the director's cut, which I haven't watched in a while, so I can't speak, um, you know, definitively on. But I'm excited to hear um, his takes of like the differences between the the director's cut, which is just called Legion, and this. Um, but yeah, there's. I think even without the director's cut, even the theatrical cut stands alone as one of the most beautiful and like visually stunning and snappiest, like funniest and scariest like horror movies ever made. Definitely. And so like I said, this is the true sequel to the exorcist because it begins. It is Georgetown 1990, 15 years have passed since the events of the first movie. And this movie picks up like basically in the exact same staircase where the first movie ends, the famous exorcist staircase. And it, it centers on both characters are recast, but the, like the, the beginning of the movie focuses on the relationship between detective Kinderman, who was played by Lee J Cobb in the original now played beautifully and even like a, like honestly better casting like George, C. George C. Scott is better than Lee J. Cobb. George C. Scott is one of yes. the best actors who's ever lived. And he, he brings it, he brings it in this movie. Cause like when you see George C. Scott in a movie, you are guaranteed at least one in like moment of sheer meltdown of sheer rage and anxiety induced meltdown. And boy, we should have a, we, we, we so should all we, we, we should all maybe this is the moment context free. What is your favorite uh, George C. Scott snapping moment? Because there's about like three or four in the movie. What is what is the one that stands out to you? It's to me. I can, it's okay. Go it's, ahead. It's, it's it's the first one where he's like the hospital lawyer is like, have you ever heard of a malpractice suit? And like, the, it's just this din of noise. And he's trying to patiently, calmly explain. That's my favorite scene the, in the movie. The Gemini killings to them. And you can just see the rage building in him until he just goes, shut your mouth. And yeah. then he's like, and then he catches himself and he's like yeah. crying and he goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, and then there's, of course, it is not in the file. It's it's not in the file is That's, great. It is not in the file. It is not. <laughs> My favorite is underlooked because it happens before that. Both of those. It's when he's visiting Father Dyer initially in the hospital and a nurse comes in and she goes, everyone OK? And he goes, we're fine. We're fine. And, uh, <laughs> we're fine. It like peaks the microphone. The microphone like never, never had another day of uh, you know, of its life. Yeah, they had to throw it away. Like, you can that. hear the gain <laughs> in in the. Uh, in the recording so yeah it's it's got wonderful george g scott it's freakouts so. in in this too and just like an actor of his caliber and the lead role in this like you know intense scary horror movie is so impressive to me because he won best actor i mean this guy is a fucking a grand slam heavy hitter for like leading men in a movie and holy goddamn like it, george g scott as kinderman in this movie is one of my favorite performances matched only by brad dorif as the gemini brad killer Dorf. yes Brad Dorf is the Gemini killer. There was a point where I was taking notes and I was like, I cannot keep pausing and writing down every single line out of Brad Dorf's mouth because I was like, the, the scenes between Brad Dorf and George C. Scott in this movie are, honest to God, like some of the best acting I've, I don't know what William Peter Blatty did to, to get these scenes out of them, to get this like brilliant, like, I mean, it's mostly Dorif in those scenes, like, you know, monologuing, hamming it up. But the every time it cuts back to George C. Scott, it really is like two titans interacting. It's, it's so, like, amazing and incredible. I mean, both George C. Scott and Dorif go, like, they, they open the throttle 
in this movie. Like they they get it up to eleven. Yes. And what I love so what I appreciate so much about the performances that they that they bring to this movie is that there are like it's a short list of actors that can go that hard and not have it be ridiculous. And Brad Dorif and George C. Scott are near the top of the list of the guys who can do it. And when they do it in this yes. movie, it is stunning. I also though want to yes. want to pipe up for Ed Flanders. Uh, who yes, as Father Dyer. Father Dyer, as you said, he's recast. And I agree with you, Will, that George C. Scott is right and perfect for um, Kinderman in this movie. I think it's interesting, though, and it works, that in the original movie, that's a different time in Kinderman's life. And I think uh, Lee J. Cobb works great in that movie in a way that Scott maybe wouldn't have, unless he played it very differently, because part of why Kinderman is so so sad and miserable throughout this entire film is those good days are gone. You know, he used yes. to be friends with Damien Karras. He used to be friends with yeah. obviously father Dyer up until a few days before. And even then he was still pretty cranky. So it's a really great recasting for that reason. Lee J Cobb in the original is more kind of like a gentle grandfatherly like guy. And in this one, George C. Scott is just like a, a quite bitter, a, cantankerous as you said um almost exhausted man husk of a man but uh he's counterbalanced by ed flanders who's also in the ninth configuration and here is maybe where i'll just i wanted to say a word about the humor of the film because it really does come from chiefly their banter and i don't know if i mean maybe if listeners don't know william peter blatty actually began his writing career after serving in the U S information agency in Lebanon, by the way, um, uh, cause he's Lebanese. Uh, he began, oh. he began his career as a comic writer. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote, uh, comic novels and things like that. And I'm actually rereading the exorcist, the original exorcist book right now for the season. And in that, and also in films like ninth configuration, the comic stuff is on full display. Uh, and I would say in this one too, his dialogue is always in some way colored by a really cheeky sense of humor. And, and this movie is not completely joyless, at least for the first bit, because Kinderman and Dyer, it's one of my favorite double acts, I, uh, yeah. in, in movies. Uh, there's, there's a real melancholy underscoring the whole movie, but the scenes where they're together are really like this spark of joy comes forward. They have this old you know? married couple dynamic because, you know, yes, uh, uh, Dyer exactly. was friends with Karis and then like uh, Kinderman met Karis through the initial investigation into the Reagan household in the original movie. But like, there's a great, a great bit where they're like, um, first it shows Father Dyer and he's like, oh, I got to hang out with Kinderman today. He's, he gets depressed on this day. And then it cuts to the next scene. It's Kinderman and he's telling his wife like, Ugh, I gotta hang out with Father Dyer today. He always gets depressed on this day. They and both it's think they're doing like, each other a favor to like be nice to each other on the day that they're all sad. They which just is, love each other. They just love each other and love hanging out with each and, other and don't want to admit and it. And they're right and about the day, each other. The, yes. And the day in question is the 15th anniversary of Damien Karras's uh, death slash sacrifice that ended the first Exorcist movie. Him, him saying, take me and jumping out of the window with the demon inside of him. But like... 
uh, you mentioned like uh, that, that like there is joy in this movie. It is not just pure evil. And I think the fact that there is joy and friendship and love makes the evil aspects of this movie all the more vivid. But like in, I think contained in the dire Kinderman relationship, because like as the movie opens, like you said, Brendan, this is now 15 years on from the original Exorcist. Kinderman knows that something extraordinary happened there, but like can't quite metabolize it. He doesn't really know how to deal with it. But he has spent the last 15 years just being a homicide detective and seeing the absolute worst that human beings are capable of doing each other and sort of resigning himself to the like bureaucratic and societal apathy of people being aware of like uh, you know cruelty and and evil on an on, on like an almost unimaginable level but everyone just kind of goes along with their day the machine still keeps going on and he's just there to kind of clean up the mess and yeah. he's become like you said he's almost a husk of a man as this movie begins like he is it, it like in in the book, Kinderman is Jewish and represents like kind of a secular point of view. And like, I think like he did, but he knows that evil exists, but mm-hmm. he's beginning to doubt whether good or grace are possible in a world where such evil takes place. Well, the, one of my, it, it's one of the f- funny, but also points directly tying into what you're saying where, uh, he's describing before he describes the really gnarly murder to uh dire uh, he goes, would a God who's good at invent, uh, uh, death, would a God who's good invent something like that? It's a lousy idea, Father. It's not popular. It's not a winner. And uh, when Father <laughs> Dyer says, when, when Father Dyer says, and of course, Scott's performance elevates the, the funny dialogue as well. But when uh, Father Dyer says, Bill, it all works out right. And Kinderman goes, when? And he goes, at the end of time. And, and George C. Scott just goes, that soon. That soon, yeah, and I love <laughs> excellent. Um, Father Dyer, Father Dyer's answer is one of the best, like delivered lines, like in the movie. I think where he takes like a drag of his cigarette and just like plays with his food a little bit with his fork, and then goes without even making eye contact with him, just says, "We're gonna be there. We're gonna live forever, Bill. We're spirits." Yep. Yes, and he seems. It seems like he doesn't even believe that anymore. Mm. <laughs> he's just fucking saying it because he's like. Just has to repeat it to himself because he's like, if it's not true, then what the fuck have I been doing for my entire life, basically? <laughs> but it it really seems like he's not convinced. By the way, Larry King is in that diner. Uh, yeah. There's a, shot, a very quick shot where oh my God. I don't know if that's another some Catholic. Other amazing cameos coming up in this movie. Let's, as well. can, we yeah. through, can we yeah, we talk about? Can we go through the cameos yeah. very quickly? Yes. I think. Well, actually, actually, all I think, the cameos um, take place in the dream sequence. So let's just like in uh, the hog in the Hagia Sophia, the most beautiful building ever built by humans. I think uh, easily. Do you have any insight into this, Brendan? Of like, do they film the on the ground sequences somewhere else? Because I can't imagine that they flew like patrick ewing and fabio to istanbul <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so I, I don't know that that much about this about the specific like shoot of of the dream sequence but um i mean they they had a decent budget uh that might have allowed yes. them to i mean and I, I don't even know if like these were pure favors done by by the people we're about to shout out as the cameos either if that was in the budget either but yes. um oh my yes God. you have well, what the cameos this is one of the most cameo rich movies of all time. Honestly. Which is weird, but, but, but true. Uh, 
Yes. Before I get to uh, probably my favorite dream sequence ever featured in a movie and my favorite depiction of heaven ever featured in a movie, I just yes. want to return to Dyer and Kinderman mm. at their, on their little date where they go see It's a Wonderful Life. They go to the pictures every year on the anniversary. But, but in the Dyer-Kinderman relationship, I think... Like I read into that like the kind of the push and pull in Blatty's own soul between like uh, someone who accepts the like the evil of the world and has a kind of a, a joyful and faithful outlook on it. Like he believes that God's plan will bear out in the end, that at the end of time all all scales will be balanced and that we are spirits that will live forever. But like, and he has a very, a very witty, funny and sardonic view of the world. Like he's like, he tells a parishioner that like God loves you, but everyone else thinks you're an asshole. He's just like, yes. he, he, wear, he reads women's wear daily. He's just got this very like, like funny, like wry outlook on the world. Yep. Whereas Kinderman is worn <laughs> down by the cynicism and evil of the world. And he's just like, ah, God damn it. Fuckers. <laughs> and it's just like the despair of Kinderman and his pessimism about evil. I think is like a, I think it reflects Blatty's own sensibility but also I want to talk about the foreshadowing again of that scene at the restaurant where Dyer and Kinderman are having kind of a philosophical debate I think that is great foreshadowing for like the three confrontations that Kinderman has after Dyer is murdered with Legion slash Gemini killer slash Damien Karras Yes. But like just to, to, to foreground as we we talk about this dream sequence yes. where uh heaven is depicted. Uh to like to get to there, like I mean just the details of the plot is that Kinderman is investigating a horrific murder of like a teenage black kid in DC who, as he describes to uh Dyer, has had like ingots driven into his eyes, uh decapitated and had his body crucified with rowing oars, and his head replaced with the statue of Christ painted in blackface to look like a minstrel show. And yes. listener, yes, you do see that in the movie at one point. Yes. But just the description of that level of like absolute blasphemy and evil on like every level of like religious, racial, it's a kid. Like is just, this movie truly tries to confront and deal with like the unimaginable, unspeakable evil. Yes. And it, it really is. I think like part of the brilliance of this movie is that through most of it re- actually like is a police procedural. Yes. Until it completely falls apart at the end like, you know, like the Blues Brothers car after they park in that one scene, <laughs> but like kind of over the course of like 20 minutes or so where you realize like oh, you cannot investigate the devil like this and you can't convict him. You can't, like, use... Like, the only thing to do is just to, like, shoot him in the fucking head inside of his, you know, padded cell, kind of. Well, um, and and this, is, this is not an original uh, observation, but every kind of pillar, expected pillar of society is corrupted in the film. The police... The hospital is is infected by it, you know. Yes, where you want to feel safe, yeah. where you think you're safe, yeah. Like the places you think you're the safest are completely bullshit, and- including including um, you know, in some cases, including religion. Um, and so yes, your own home, yeah, and 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 that's that's where the 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 confrontation with like Blatty, Blatty's working through his own stuff. I I think is is interesting and. Um, 
yeah, both of these Kinderman, movies today are authors slash directors working through some shit. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I think Clive Barker would do a head worked through his shit he by worked the time through he made it. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was like, now it's your turn, everyone else. Like, yeah, work through your shit. No, you're right. That's what's yeah. so brilliant about Hellraiser is that it makes you into a pervert when you watch it because you're like, oh, gee, do, yes. I, do I have these thoughts and feelings inside Absolutely. of me? Whereas Exorcist 3 has, a, has, a, has a, a different effect, which is, I, I don't know if it's like yes. spiritually despairing, uh, but I mean, like like I said, there is, there is goodness in this movie, but like, also well, it's... It's interesting to hear that um, the like George C. Scott character was Jewish in the or in the book. He's also Jewish because, in the director's cut that is included in the film. Oh my god! He, because well, I thought his wife was Jewish in the theatrical cut. You, get, it's very clear. The one thing that is clear is that his wife is Jewish because she makes a comment about it when he first sees her. But um, he, he he reminds me a bit of his character in the hospital. Uh, oh my god! I was gonna say like most of this movie takes place in a yeah, hospital. I know, and the way like if you want to see George C. Scott melting down in a hospital setting, you've got two movies that you got two from. great ones. You got, uh, got yeah, Exorcist three, and then Patty Chayefsky's The Hospital. Um, and now, uh, uh, yes, the hospital in which like okay, he goes to visit Father Dyer, who's having some routine procedure at a hospital, and then Father Dyer yes. is murdered. And he is murdered in, in the same horrific, unspeakable way as like several the, the 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 teenager at the beginning of the movie. Then another priest has been killed, and now Father Dyer in his hospital bed. All seem to have been killed by the same serial killer, who is that has the exact same unique mo as this Je- the Gemini killer, which is a guy a serial killer that has been executed at, by the start of this movie. So like that 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 is a mystery that the first half of the movie is attempting to solve. Yes, and if for some reason you're listening to this before you watch the movie, the Gemini killer is uh, Brad Dorif, and we will see, you know, Brad Dorif later in cell eleven in the hospital. But um, he, the the there's an incredible scene where there the connections between the murders are elucidated, and George C. Scott tells everyone who is yelling at him and screaming at him for separate reasons um, that this has to be the Gemini killer who was executed. The Gemini killer, we put in the press that it was the uh, middle finger on the left hand that was cut off, but it was the index finger on the right hand. And we put on in the press like that he carved the Gemini symbol into like somewhere the but back. really it was carved into their yeah into their back and really it was carved into their hand and um he's like these all these murders have been done by the gemini killer they all have the original mo the original like sign and this like the gravity with which he delivers these lines are like my favorite Truly one of my favorite moments in the entire movie. I said it was my favorite George C. Scott meltdown, but like it's the way he's trying to contain himself and calmly relate yes. these very complicated details to these idiots around him. And then he yes. just can't do it anymore and he breaks down and then literally yes. starts crying because of how annoyed he is. Well, what's... Yes, he's so, he's so me. What's, like, yeah. what's exhilarating about it, especially, you know, as a movie connected with, with, with the original Exorcist is that you know, it's a guy who's trying to take the rational approach just professionally. He has to connect clues and evidence and things, and he's coming up against something that, that that's probably going to be impossible. So that's, that, that's, what's so interesting about it and why I, I, 
I don't want to talk about the new exorcist uh, that much, <laughs> but just if you're going to do as Blatty well knew, if you're going to do a sequel to the exorcist, you don't have to do another movie about a girl who is possessed. That's not the point yeah. of what the first one was really about. And it doesn't need to be a series of movies about girls who are possessed. Blatty goes a completely different place with it. And this movie is, as you both said, a procedural it's, it's a completely different context and a completely different struggle. But the the theme of testing faith or be, you know, discovering what may or may not exist because of extreme evil in the world, that stays the same. But he was smart enough not to know, well, I'm gonna do another exorcist and it's gonna be two little girls this time who are who are possessed. Yeah. And that's why people will come see it. It's it's a totally different movie. Uh but I, I suppose now we should get to the the dream sequence yeah. and the cameo laden yes. uh trip to heaven. This is uh, right before Father Dyer is murdered uh kinderman has a dream that i said is one of my favorite dream sequences in movies it's one of the funniest like out of nowhere sequences in this movie but also it is actually like in a very touching way it is actually like my favorite depiction of the afterlife in a movie because he depicts heaven as a physical transitory space it is a amalgam of as you already mentioned the, the hagia sophia in Istanbul, which has that like the ring of windows in which light points in at, at, across by, like sort of bisecting angles, and it's the, the the famous dome of the Hagia Sophia. But the the floor level of heaven is Grand Central Station, and it's all yes. these different people like departing and arriving. There are scenes of people like on radios trying to contact other people, and then we get a parade of cameos, beginning with Samuel L. Jackson. I don't know if you call the blind as man. a blind man who screams like uh, sorry, where the is living it? the the living or deaf or something like that. I think he says something yes. like that. <laughs> but his voice is overdubbed, so it it is not um, Sam Jackson's voice, which may throw people off when they see him. But yes. it's it's like someone completely different that they dubbed over for whatever reason. Uh, a kinderman sees the the murder victim, the teenage boy in heaven, and he goes, "Oh, hi! It's good to see you again. I'm sorry that you got murdered." And he's like, "It's all right." Yeah. Yep. And then we get I to, miss you, Tom. I yes. miss you. <laughs> and then we get to see a perfect cameo of Fabio as an angel. Yes, Fabio, the most angelic, one of the most angelic men of all time. Truly, um, as said in Zoolander, one of the great actors slash models. <laughs> <laughs> and then he won that award for he, a reason. He, he did not get any lines uh, in, in, in the scene. <laughs> yes. And then for me, maybe my favorite out of left field cameo in, a, in movie history ever depicts yes. in this movie basketball star Patrick Ewing as the angel of death who is playing, who's doing tarot cards for Father Dyer. And he approaches, and like, it's Patrick Ewing sitting there in long flowing white robes with these huge black wings on his back. Yes. And Kinderman approaches Dyer and looks at him sort of quizzically, like sort of funnily and says, like, what are the chances we're both dreaming this at the same time? And Dyer looks at him and says, I'm not dreaming. You know, and then the, it's, everything starts to escalate as the dream comes to an end in this, like, um, you know, Blatty flexing his director muscle in a way that is so rare for someone who's not an experienced director to do so well of like everything escalates like the jazz, the big brass like jazz band playing it like zooms into them and they start playing faster and faster and faster. The creepy old ladies at the piano. Yeah. 
it cuts to the old ladies at the piano and like they all have like different like they look like they're straight out of the movie brazil and it like patrick ewing starts putting down in fast motion like the hanged man over and over and over again um and then george c scott wakes up and gets the call that father dyer has been killed at the hospital and i just love that moment in the dream when he says, like, you know, I'm thinking, what are, were we both dreaming the same thing at the same time? And his friend in the dream says, Bill, I'm not dreaming because yeah. he's already yes. dead. Yeah. He's dead. Like he's encountering his soul in heaven. And again, like that's another optimistic part about that movie, about this movie is that Dyer is in heaven. Yes. But sure. I have to speak to the, the Patrick Ewing cameo. I don't know how they pulled Fabio, but the Patrick Ewing cameo in this movie means one thing and one thing only. The Georgetown setting and that Blatty was a Georgetown guy. Yes. And Ewing, of course, famously was a Hoya before being drafted to the Knicks. So I, I love a little bit of a little Georgetown connection just that got Patrick Ewing in a film appearance. He would later go on to be uh, featured in the Whoopi Goldberg movie, Eddie, yes. and the Marlon Wayans, the Wayans Brothers movie, The Sixth Man. And, uh, and Space Jam, of course, in 1996. Oh, yeah. How could I forget Space yes. Jam? Yeah. Well, um, I don't think it's heaven that they're in. I think it's purgatory yeah. because they're waiting. It's like a station that you're stuck it in. Seems you know? that it's way. like being stuck in the airport that way. of the afterlife. There's, there's two things uh, that, that I, I, I think of with that sequence or, or that I th- I'm thinking to bring up one is, is that I always really love how Blatty because I think because he is so actually devout and has spent his whole life thinking about what eternity might be like and what all of these words and ideas, you know, uh, how they're essentially incomprehensible to people. He almost just doesn't even try to show you what, the glory of heaven would actually be. So he has a much more kind of, I would again say kind of tongue in cheek presentation of like a kind of schlubby heaven or purgatory or whatever it is where he, he doesn't even bother. He just makes it kind of like a, like a joke you know, where there's bolts on his neck because they had to put his head back on, you know, and there's all these kind of weird cameos and there's old ladies playing piano. Like, that's not a very glorified, you know, um, sentimental version of the afterlife of heaven because he just doesn't care. I think he's like, well, that would be beyond what anyone could show. So I'm going to talk in like, I'm going to talk in sort of metaphors and and jokes, really. Um, And that makes it creepier. It's that that, that God and the unseen in the afterlife would be like unknowable or un... Like the reality of it, you can process through like human eyes so that like his experience of it in the dream is like made legible by making it a train station. Yeah. I mean, like to, to lay on to that, like I think another element of it is that he doesn't need to depict hell either because the point of the movie is that we already know what hell looks like and it's like the disease, degradation and cruelty of the world we currently live in. Yeah. The, the, as a contrast to Hellraiser, the other thing, this is a decent is enough time to bring it up is... Um, music in the film. When we were watching it, well, yes. I kind of forgot. I don't know how, because I, I love this movie as much as you both. I forgot how little score there is in the film. There's a lot of sound design, really wonderful, effective sound, the sound design. design in this movie is immaculate. It is I, the scariest part un- of the movie. It is unreal. I think, like, yeah. in just quickly, like the first scene, a piece, uh, like a newspaper is flying up those stairs that yeah. Father Karras dies on. And when it it bumps into the stairs on its way up like a couple times and like the way the sound of it bumping into it like shakes your bones kind of because it's so like deep and like and 
and, and you, there you know, is I don't know. in that well, you moment. You hear at various points the growling of the demon yes. and these like this yes. ambient wall of just like like ominous sound. Uh, in, in the in the in the initial moments on the stairs, you get a two or three second bit of tubular bells, and then it's just washed away by the low groaning, and almost like he's saying, "Okay, this is something different." You know, uh, again. Yeah, maybe uh, take some notes. Anyone who happens to be making new Exorcist films, uh, as soon as this movie <laughs> starts, he's like, "Yeah, we all know that. We've done that." So it's not tubular bells, and then you just get the sound design. But in this dream sequence, it's really one of the first moments you you hear music, and it's this tacky muzak happening in purgatory or heaven or whatever it is. But in general, um, there's no theme, there's no consistent you know score. I can only think of a couple moments where music is really pumping. Uh, they're like stings. Yeah, and and, and, and of course the the famous scene. There's a great sting, but it's not really musical so much as a, a kind of no. uh, uh, sound cue. But all of the but all of the uh, quietude really, unlike Hellraiser, where the the score lifted it up, Blatty knew where uh, that that was the, where the opposite should happen. And this movie is yes. so quiet, which the original Exorcist is too, to be fair. But this is so quiet, it 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 really is. It becomes disturbing, and it makes you feel on edge at every moment, like a faucet dripping, a door creaking, yes. a pa- papers rustling. The, the great example of that. Uh, particularly is when Kinderman is talking to the university president uh, and the little, yes. And, and yes. the little whispers in the yes. papers. I remember when I first saw it, that was actually That's the, the scariest scene in this movie. That was the scariest scene to me because it's, uh, it's so quiet that, and, and there is no real, I guess there's a jump scare at the very end when the lady says, here's the yes. speech, you know, and you're like, God. lady jumps at him and uh, like dives at him and screams as loud as she can yeah. and says, you scared me, right. huh? But, but that scene, and I also love that university president, by the way, he's in it more in the, in the director's cut, but in the beginning when, when, uh, Dyer says my favorite movies, uh, it's a wonderful life. What's yours. And with this severe, like hiss, the guy just goes, the fly like that and <laughs> something about the georgetown cronenbergs or the original i mean i think i, I like the imagining it's, it's I, think cronenbergs. Cronenberg. Cronenberg. I think that's the joke is this absolutely this guy's a total i sicko. mean there's so many there are references to a lot of 80s movies in this like there's a part where he says um where father dyer tells the nurse like may the schwartz be with you before she leaves the room <laughs> yes uh there's there, there's also a great bit uh, I'll talk about the Legion versus Exorcist three thing at the end, maybe, but there is a great cut line in this um, where uh, on their date, Kinderman and Dyer, um, Kinderman, I think it starts the scene in that version where he goes, he's saying of it's of it's a wonderful life, which they've just seen. Uh, you know, it's just it's such a tender movie, you know, just so heartfelt. And Dyer goes, well, Bill, you said the same thing about Eraserhead. <laughs> also, <laughs> another another awesome line. Another great little bit of banter. But um, I, I want to talk about the scene you referenced, Brendan, uh, which to me is like when this movie opens up a new chamber. And when like the, the supernatural begins to intrude on this movie heavily and like it's sort of like it marks a departure from like the first third or so of the movie, the first half. And it's when Kinderman goes to see the university president after Father Dyer's murder. It's like Dyer's yes. boss at the, you know, the church slash Georgetown University. And he goes to his office and like this is like the way the way this is all set up is, is like, as we'll see later in the hallway scene, is a real microcosm. It's just like as a stand in for like a, a structural device that is used throughout the entire movie that you realize when you watch it is that like he sets it like he he cuts hard 
from like someone will finish a line of dialogue and it will cut hard immediately after the word ends. Like it doesn't give you any space to react and it will cut to either an exterior or an interior that you haven't seen before. And your mind takes a little, like you don't really know where you are or who's in this scene and your mind doesn't really know what it's looking at. But he, he creates these establishing shots of interior spaces and then begins to fill them with people. And then like he will set up another shot, like for instance, where the university president and Kinderman are talking and it's the university president is the first person in this movie to reference the possession that took place in the first movie it's a thing that everyone yes. watching the movie is aware of right but no one in the movie has mentioned they've been dancing around it yep. and he starts talking about reagan mcneil and the possession in which damien Karras lost his life doing it and then in the office what does he have a huge grandfather clock what does that clock do it stops just like the mm-hmm. sequence with Father Marin in northern yep. Iraq in the very beginning of The Exorcist. Yes. And then you begin to hear sort of like the wailing of an old woman. You get the overlaid with chanting in Latin. And a door creaks open and you see an individual sheet All of paper. shut off. An individual sheet of paper just lift up on its own and just sort of crinkle and go back down. And then he'd already previously shown you a statue right outside the office door that's like a statue of a saint or something. The lights go out. He shows you the same interior space that he showed you before, but with shadows moving through it. The lights go out, and then he shows you the statue again, but the face is like demonic. It's the Joker. It's the Joker, it's yeah. It's the Joker. It's yeah. Joker-fied. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he, he has a really good... There's a lot of... I can just rifle through them now. There's, there's a lot of great subtle touches in this film. Like in the very beginning, which I, I didn't notice the first maybe two times I saw it. In the beginning with that... I think it might be a POV shot, you know, basically of of walking through George the dream, the dream, yeah, the I've, dream I've that dream both Karis and uh, Father Dyer describe. Of I had a dream of roses and um, I falling down a flight of stairs. But uh, yeah, roses and then falling down a flight. But of as stairs, the camera's yes. p- pushing in in the first moment, if you look in the distance, you see a figure in a black robe running down the street. And I think that is maybe supposed to be whoever just committed the murder under the Gemini or whatever. But I, I didn't see that the first couple of times because it's not in the center of the frame. It's it's way like like in the distance and far back, but it's totally silent. And you just see this cloaked figure running and it looks like incredibly satanic and evil, although it's just this very subtle, this subtle detail. Yes. And there's no music. And there's no music. It's totally silent. It's just the wind and the credits are rolling. There's no music playing during the credits, which is so rare. Yep. Well, the other the the other scene that is is less. I mean, what's happening is more extraordinary. But he still treats very like everything else except for that one moment in the middle where it kind of peaks. Is when the old lady. It's now it's iconic. I mean, he kind of invented a, you know people crawling on the ceiling and like demon like. Yes. But when the little old lady is crawling, it's completely silent. It's not like yeah. there's, yes. there's not yeah. a big dumbass conjuring sting or anything like that. And it's all what's scary about it is that no one sees it happening and it's completely quiet. And he has yes. that restraint that, again, as like basically a first time director, second time director is pretty amazing. He didn't rely on anything else except the disturbing visual. And 
and Brendan, like in your description of that, like of how he uses quiet and like the patience and foreshadowing, I think it's like a good shorthand for what is good horror versus bad horror. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the scares in a bad horror movie just beat you over the head and like it is just like you have it's it's like you have it's authoritarian. You have no choice but to react. Thirteen ghosts <laughs> from the, like, the movie is telling you yes. like you have no choice. Yeah. Whereas like what he does in this movie is that he shows you in a couple truly like jolting jump scares in this movie. But like so much of it, like it's everything that surrounds it is so quiet and patient when it happens. It's almost like, like I said, your mind isn't really quite sure what it's seeing. Right. And you have to like, you have to figure out what you've seen after like the scare has taken place and it has a really a much more unnerving, uncanny effect. Yep. I mean, can we, can we talk about the hospital? Yeah. Um, the famed, because there's so much in that, that I think relates to what we're talking about right now and it's um basically most of this scene where um what has happened is basically father dyer is killed in the hospital and then um uh george c scott kind of goes to the uh locked down wing with um my favorite character in the movie scott uh, scott wilson temple scott Scott wilson as dr temple he is my personal mvp Um, i love him in this yes my favorite character in he's, the entire movie. He's, um, he's the head because of, of one scene later. He's the head of the shut up and eat ward, uh, which like you know presides over the catatonics. And yes. what I love about yes. the Doctor Temple character is that there is something instantly off-putting about him. Yes, yes. I mean, my my favorite scene, um, besides the George C. Scott, like um, I think the funniest scene in the movie is there's a scene where it cuts to Doctor Temple's office, and his his character trait is that he. Um, like obsessively smoked cigarettes, but and to butt. the entire movie basically is from um the besides the kills are from the point of view of uh George C. Scott, but um in this one moment we see Father Temple and or Doctor Temple, I'm sorry, and he keeps talking like he's like saying like that man that I showed you earlier in the in the psych ward. He actually, funny thing about him, we found him. And then he keeps starting over and he's starting rehearsing. again. And you're like, who's he talking to? Yeah, because it keeps cutting to like different things in his office, including a big poster of the hanged man card from the town. And a big portrait of um, himself, which is which is awesome. Yes. Which is and so, also and also nudie pinups, which is very professional for a yes. doctor to have in his office. Yes. And I think like the one of the greatest bits of acting business of anything like any movie I can think of that I think I'm like, this is so brilliant is he keeps rehearsing and his cigarette is in his left hand. And he's like smoking his cigarette compulsively as he's reading his lines off this little sheet of like yellow legal paper. And um, then George C. Scott comes in, he takes his lines and puts them in his desk, but his cigarette is out. So he takes another cigarette in his right hand and lights it with the old one. And George C. Scott like makes fun of him and is like, uh, wow, you got a lot of papers in your room, in your office, huh? Like must be a paper drive. And he's like, I I haven't gotten around to reading them yet. (laughs) The science articles are very good. (laughs) (laughs) And then he, um, leans back and he's holding his cigarette in his right hand, but because he's rehearsed so many times with it in his left yeah. hand, he's holding his hands up like he has two cigarettes, like <laughs> yeah. flanking his head. And he's just like, 
that man that we brought you yeah. in. And George C. Scott is like, what the fuck is he doing with his because hands? Ever, it's so I mean, again, amazing. people should definitely have watched it already, but the, the, the Gemini has told him to say this to George C. Scott. Yes. And so, it, or else he'll do something horrible to him. So he is being, he's been blackmailed by a demon, or, or not a demon, but by a, yes. but by a, by a, uh, a formerly chem- catatonic amnesia patient that's been in a, 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 yeah, a resurrected serial killer uh, to, to say, go, go say these lines to the detective and get it right, or else I'm going to fucking kill you. And so he's just really or nervous. Else, yeah. Yeah, you will experience horrors unlike anything anyone's ever imagined. And the funny thing is that later on when Brad Dorf is describing this, he's like, the poor sucker actually believed me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, he, uh, Scott uh, so Wilson, like, is great. All, he's great in this. Uh, Scott Wilson, you might remember Incredible. him from his brief appearance at the beginning of Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Yeah. Uh, he was also <laughs> yes. in uh, In the Heat of the Night with Sidney uh, Poitier. He's also in, uh, he's, he's the star of, or the, the, the most important character in uh the ninth configuration so he's great in that yes he's uh, in the ninth configuration also well. marge helgenberger's father on csi nice um, so like all of this is for, foreshadowing to like where the hospital the cat of course the catholic hospital has become uh basically the centerpiece of this movie and this is all foreground for the infamous hallway scare scene in this movie, which is one of the most, I say again, singular moments in horror history is this scare. In movie history, I yeah. would say. It's so incredible. Uh, I don't know. Like, so Brendan, you want to like, uh, like set this up? Like, how does this, sh- how does this scene work? Okay. And like, what is so, so extraordinary the, about it? The beginning, the, the setup of this scene is that um, George C. Scott has gone into that guy's uh, like uh, cell to visit with him and sees that it is literally actually Damien Karras, like the dead priest from his friend who died. Played by, of the course, Exorcist. the good Jason Miller. Yes. Uh, the, the, ba- yes. the bad Jason Miller will, let's just say... Yes, there are two Jason Millers and this is the good one. Let's just say the bad but, Jason um, Miller will be... Uh, He'll be quite an experiment for the Cenobites when his, his time comes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, he goes in, sees that it is literally Father Karras in there, and Father Karras is telling him, like, ah, ha, ha, like, I killed, like, so many people. Like, I, you know, I've been taught by the master. And then we see that it becomes Brad Dorif. This is who is really inhabiting this body. George C. Scott is like, we need to lock down this hospital. I need two officers in every wing with rotations, like every 12 hours, every like eight hours or something. Like I I need them to be patrolling. Everything needs to be completely secure. And so you as a viewer are like, okay, when it cuts to the hospital and you literally see um, like a police officer sitting in a chair and a nurse at the front desk and another police officer in the hallway behind him pacing back and forth. The immediate thought is safety. There's two police officers. We're totally safe. And the one police officer like leaves for a second and the other police officer walks away. And then the nurse goes to check on like a noise she heard um, down the hall, like upstage basically towards the camera we should make and, clear that like about a, a minute and 30 seconds to progress with absolutely like a single static shock. No sound. And yeah, no sound. Totally one shot. Well, there's like, there's like Most ambient of the sound. Like it's like them chattering, but yes. there's no dialogue that's, you know, being delivered. Yeah. No dialogue, just 
background chatter, footsteps, total silence. And then you hear this strange crackling and you're like, what the hell is that? And then like the nurse like looks down the hall indicating, oh, she's hearing it too. And then eventually she goes to check it out and she sees a glass of water. It's impossible to stress that like this takes place over like three minutes and it's so stressful and she slowly opens the door and sees that it's just a glass of water with ice that's melting, that's making this noise, which... And then this guy, like, wakes up from the bed next to the glass of water and is like, ah! It screams at and, her, And that is a really like, effective... Like, like that'll jolt, jolt you out of your seat if you're not ready for it. That, that jump scare is, is incredible. But it is a misdirection. It is the false fright because then it goes right back out to that same shot of the hallway and the scene continues for like another two minutes yes and the best part she goes back out into the hallway the the police officer she goes immediately behind the desk and starts rummaging through papers and it is as loud as the jump scare which is my favorite part of the whole scene because it's like kind of being like, okay, you not only do you not have to be worried because all tension was diffused a second ago, but like you don't have to be worried because right. like the noise is like you're desensitized to the noise because she's opening and closing drawers so loudly that it's just like, and then the police officer comes back in and you're like, okay, the, now we're completely safe. And then she sees room 411, which is the room Father Dyer died in. And there's like a weird sound, like a very slight sound coming from it. And she gets up to go look. And as she's walking into the room, the other police officer comes out and takes the other, like calls the other police officer out and is like, so both police officers are gone. And she goes into the room. Nothing happens. Totally silent. She closes the door and walks away. And like this figure, like, speed walks out of the room with these like garden shears and just cuts her fucking head off in like one second and it zooms in so Snaps fast in. and it this is incredible music sting oh god it is such a violent like uh, just shocking because like you know what's coming you know something bad is going to happen but you're still not prepared for when it happens and the cool thing is there are these huge it's basically like shears that are designed to remove the heads from cadavers for like medical schools <laughs> yes. and this like the figure comes out with these shears and it zooms in really quickly but it doesn't actually show the decapitation what it does is another one of these hard smash cuts to a still image of the decapitated statue of christ that we saw earlier in the movie in another jarring moment as kinderman goes into an elevator this was like an hour earlier in the movie and that's what i mean about like these matched shots that like have an hour separating them but only become like legible as you experience them it's true it's god level filmmaking making i think yeah i i I think that there's there's like an unstated everyone kind of got together and ripped off so much from this movie i mean clearly much was ripped off about the exorcist you had you had all kinds of i mean there was that film abby the the black exploitation version that was literally just the exorcist again but kind of lower production value but as far as conceptualist what's that the blexorcist yes um (laughs) but the but the some of the staples of what now is almost like kind of canned horror stuff, possessed old people, people crawling on, on, on the ceiling, like, like, like spiders and stuff. 
Because the spider walk, yes. the spider walk, everyone thinks of the Exorcist. That was not in the Exorcist until the DVD in two thousand. No. So really, the first like version of that was in this movie. And then it's not really a nun, but it looks like a kind of cloaked nun-like religious figure who is barreling out of that room about to cut her head off. And now there's like, you know, the fucking nun two or whatever. There's an obvious like cashing yes. in. But Blatty has all of that in one film and he doesn't milk any of it. It's all just used incredibly, like we've already said deliberately. But the one thing no one has ever, I think, tried to like steal because you really can't do it twice is something like that long, long, long long shot that we've been discussing. I don't, maybe someone yes. has done it, but I don't think anyone has ever even tried to do that again. It's, it's, it's really difficult to stress that this scene is like six or seven minutes long, like maybe six minutes long. And like the entire, like maybe 80% of it is this one shot yeah. of the hallway. And it just zooms in once at the very, very yeah. end. It's once again, done. just the confidence that it takes to pull that off is incredible. Yes. Um, the, um, uh, the, there's, we kind of were getting into the Dorif zone there um, about his yes, meeting. The Dorif we should, we zone. Should, I think we should conclusively enter the Dorif realm because he, he, yes, he to me, like to he is the, the, the heart of this movie for me. Like the, the, the first two thirds of this movie or so, like I said, are eerily foreshadowing the evil that Kinderman will encounter in, like I said, these three confrontations that are really almost filmed like confessionals each time because they're like two men in profile sitting on benches in this cell that are like, there are two windows and each of them are sort of like have shafts of light highlighting each of the parties in, in this padded cell where he, you know, he comes, he, he, he realizes that the man in this padded cell is literally Damien Karras. And he originally starts talking to him and he's played by Jason Miller as in the original movie, who's also very good in this. But at yes. some point when he starts telling him the details of the Gemini killings and George C. Scott says, the Gemini killer is dead. And then it cuts to Brad Dora's face screaming, no, I am not. I am alive. I go on. I breathe. <laughs> and it's just like immediately yes. Dora just, like I said, at 11 and then from, from that point on, every time he is encountering the demon, it is in the guise of Brad Dorif, who, you know, honestly, I could have just spent this whole episode talking about Brad Dorif. He would be on probably my top five favorite actors of all time. Here. I mean, yes. like one of the greatest TV actors of all time. He basically reprises this role in one of the best X-Files episodes of all time. Him, beyond yes. the sea. Him as Doc Potter. One of the funniest Yes, exactly. Hazel, um, Hazel Motes in Blood. Wise Blood. Um, John Huston's Wise Blood. Wise Blood. Yes. Yes. Same yes. The Southern Gothic. That's the same cinematographer as this movie, by the way, Wise Blood. Oh, shit. Yep. Yo. <laughs> uh, his name um, is But yeah, but yeah as sure. you said, Doc Cochran in Deadwood. I mean, it goes on and on. Like, to, like He was nominated for Best... <laughs> No, Chucky, yes, he is the voice of Chucky, nominated yes. for Best Supporting Actor in his first movie ever, which was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which ironically sort of overshadows the ninth configuration, which is like very much a, a, a better version, movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> um, if Brad Dorif were a ninth configuration, it would have to be like the best movie. Now we're time. talking. Yeah. But, but Dorif in this movie is just like he, rep like, he represents and plays to the hilt true evil. And man, yes. oh man, is it effective? Um. Uh. So, so here's a the, the 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 way I thought about this when thinking about our discussion about you know two authors 
who ended up directing great horror films. There's a real difference uh, in this moment between Friedkin and Blatty. And I think that Friedkin, obviously, the first film, uh, the realism that Friedkin imbued to it, what everyone talks about, how it feels like a documentary, that's something that almost no one else could have successfully done. So there's tons of work and like scaffolding that made sure a movie like this could work directed by Blatty. But now that Blatty has it, uh, in the original Exorcist, there is a scene that is in the, I'll call it the 2000 version, the quote unquote version you've never seen, which is not a director's cut. It's the Blatty cut. It's scenes that Blatty told Friedkin to put back in that Friedkin never thought were necessary. And there's a scene in there, and, and that cut is very good. I don't think it's better, but it's good. There's a scene that Friedkin cut, which was a long conversation not as long as the back and forth with Dorif, but a long conversation between Karis and Father Marin about what the demon is doing in there, the nature of evil, the point of this possession. And it's very well written. It's very well acted. But Friedkin cut it all out because for him, it wasn't necessary. He was a, it, the film is a visual medium. And for him, it was like, you can see all that on the screen. I, I don't need to show a, a conversation about it. But here in this movie, Blatty is in control Religious patriots are in control, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's, yes, yeah, he's yes, an yes. author. He's a writer. The American Catholic he's, League has taken. He's control. a writer, and he's like, no, I'm putting in my monologues. Like this is my thing, and so this whole confrontation, just on like a craft level, with Blatty being in charge, I think is like, no, 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 we're we're we're, we're getting some monologues in to this exorcist. Cause I've got him, I've got him in my back yes. pocket. So that's like the, I think uh, a unique thing about him, uh, making this even possible for Dorf to do in the first place, you know? And, and I think the, the point, the movie that I keep bringing up is the big, or I've brought up once is the big, uh, you know, parallel movie to this as the master mm-hmm. as the easiest comparison, as far as the beauty of the shots and like the thoughtfulness of the composition, also stands true as like the whole movie being pinned around this incredible these incredible performances between one actor who is kind of a a pilgrim in the world of um in this world he's not familiar with and this charismatic monologue delivering uh you know, the megalomaniac. Master. The master, yes, which it, is and, and Dora refers to the demon as the master many times yes, in these in these. My, I've been taught by the master. Yes, I when he first gr- like growls like that, he's like, and, I, I do that rather well, and, don't right. you think? Well, like, I've been taught by the master. Th- this is something that I was thinking about on a recent rewatch of this movie, and I think it's part of this like his Catholic Christian conception of evil. Uh, the, 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 the Blatty cut is called Legion and Legion is a demon referred to in the new Testament in Doris dialogues with, with the Gemini's dialogues with Kinderman. He refers to the master, like as your friend was slipping away, the master was slipping me in as he describes like how, like Karis's body was hijacked by the, the demon driven out of Reagan McNeil in the first movie. He refers to the master, but then he refers to my friends, the cruel ones, and then he goes back to saying, no, there, there is, there's the one, the only one. And this reminds me of the original movie where Karis tries to describe to Marin, he's like, I've kept a running note of like some of the different personalities that are inhabiting uh, Reagan. And, and Marin goes, no, there's only, one. there's only one. 
There is only one. Yes. The demon is a liar. And it's this idea of the demon legion, that we are many, but we are one. And it's like, I was just struck by this movie's depiction of evil, is that it is both many and one at the same time. That like the evil that that men do, that we the cruelties, the horrors of this world, they're done by individuals, and it seems like there are different personalities maybe inspiring them to do it. But like there is both many and one, and there is only the master, and he is the master of like our our hearts and our fallen nature that lead us to corruption and evil. And I I think it really is an American. An especially in the modern era of an especially American phenomena of, you know, and I think part of why this all takes place in Georgetown, obviously, because I mean, Blatty is a Georgetown, you know, alum, but like this taking place in DC, yes. the center of America, is like this idea of like, you know, the famous 70s and 80s wave of American serial killers who you think like, oh my God, how can such evil exist in so many separate little, like in so many separate forms? And this idea of like, no, what if they're just one? Like, what if it's yeah. all one, you know, uniting like evil? It's it's in a way easier to digest yeah. in that way. Well, and has some glad which, you brought up serial killers because this is like a discrete phenomenon of the 60s, 70s, and 80s in America. And as we get to see like popular culture begin to metabolize the serial killer as this like stock villain. I would really put this movie as before Silence of the Lambs, which really like inaugurated the modern serial killer movie. This was the first like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer had already come out, which, if, by the way, if you haven't seen yes. one of the most nauseating, horrifying movies ever made. Yeah. But it is very different. Henry Lee Lucas, I think, is yeah. quite explicitly based on him, mostly. But. Yeah. But also, Will, uh, Manhunter, and, yeah. and, you but, know, Red Dragon had come out in 80 before. Yes, but yes. those aren't really horror movies. No. Those no. are those are like straight uh, procedural no, no, no. thrillers. Right. What I mean is that like this movie like is really one of the first that like to to take the popular conception of the serial killer and put it in like an imaginative context in which there are all these kind of like decadent artistic theatrical geniuses. Yeah. Which is kind of like an evil thought because Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is why that no one talks about that movie, is because it's the most realistic depiction of a serial killer where he is just like a basically a sub mental shithead. Yes. Like he's like a not yes. extraordinary or insightful in any way. Yep. Uh, like he's just like he, yeah. Such a disturbing movie. But like in 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 the Gemini Killer in Doris performance, he like he he references Shakespeare and he he considers himself an artist. But like it's that modern Hannibal Lecter thing of yeah. having a really really significant mo, a really unique uh, technique and style of killing people that, pe- that I think Americans got obsessed with as mm-hmm. the serial killer grew in our consciousness. But this movie is like really yes. ahead of its time in like in its fetishization of the serial killer as this like uniquely yes. demonic well, figure and well, and also uniquely intelligent and gifted my favorite one of my favorite parts of the entire monologue is when he's describing how he drained all the blood from father dyer and he's like you insert a tube into the inferior vena cava or superior vena cava it's a matter of taste don't you think and then you hold up the legs and squeeze and he every once in a while he has these escalations these like ebbs and flows well we should say by the way i feel like heath ledger really jacked a lot of his joker performance from dora in this movie but but the 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 other great touch of of this whole scene as as i think you know it's probably been remarked on before is is the fluctuation of his voice that is post-production 
where yes. Brad Dorff's normal range is he's kind of got a not a high pitched voice, but he's in the middle range. But throughout this, yeah, Blatty or I, I assume it's from Blatty's direction. They alter so that sometimes he's really quite guttural and low and baritone, and then. They never make him like helium inflected, but he, except actually maybe when he's singing as the, uh, he's singing the little, uh, oh, yeah. the alter when he does the falsetto. Yeah, the falsetto voice. But, but it's just this thing that's keeping you somewhat like on, sort of on the back foot. You can't quite even place what register this guy's voice is in, which is a nice subtle touch that makes him creepier and makes him which, you know, more forbidding. And one of my favorite little touches of that is that when um, there are the flashbacks where George C. Scott is remembering the things mm-hmm. that Brad Dorff said to him, he's remembering them in just Brad Dorff's unfiltered vo- regular yeah. voice. Whereas when we he- heard those things earlier, they were like, an octave or two deeper and with sometimes like so much like echo. And sometimes it's Jason Miller's voice yep. coming out of Brad Dorff's yes. mouth or being remembered by, uh, by Kinderman. And you know, like the, the voice pitching, uh, my, probably my favorite moment in the movie is in one of Brad Dorff's like manic monologues where he's describing that, like the demon chose Kara specifically as revenge for the exorcism and he chose Karis because he wanted the body of a priest and his soul trapped inside it to be carrying out and witnessing these insane degradations and then Brad Dorf he gets more and more jacked up and he goes and he'll be in here while I rip yeah. and mutilate the innocent he is inside with us he will never get away his pain will never end Wait. and then he just stops and goes Oh, gracious me. He goes, was I ranting? Yeah. Was I ranting? Oh, I'll calm down now. Was I ranting again? Was I ranting again? That's one of my favorite deliveries is is when he, he, he's, the, the, the sound design is also building up again where there's this big rumbling happening and he stands up and he screams, he is inside with us. That is, that is like a, a sort of one of those bone chilling you you really can't replicate that. Although oddly enough, Brad Dorff had to give this performance twice because they reshot uh everything for exorcist three not legion because the they couldn't replicate the room in the exact same way so he had to do over this entire monologue and it's actually a little bit different in in legion the um but he's actually my one of my favorite details of his little um of these scenes is that the entire time like someone in the midst of a religious ecstasy or any other kind of ecstasy, Brad Dorff is sobbing the whole time. Like, tears are tear continuously down streaming down his face. Which, yes, and literally also coming out of his nose, too, which is a signal that it's not fake. They didn't use fake tears. It's just like he's actually crying. And, like, because um, you can't fake it coming out of... Like, both, snot coming like, out of your, your nose and stuff. Yeah. Yes, your eyes and it, your it, nose. It, like it's. Um, it could mean a bunch of different things, but I, I thought that that kind of... A cool way you could read that is that the body of Karis is crying. Yes, of Karis. Yes, yes, is so you know because he's trapped, wrought by this happening to yeah. him. Because that really is like the great horror of this movie is the idea that someone as good a person as Karis, who was just trying to save a little girl, could be subjected to like this much like actual torture like pure torture and hell well this is just for no reason other than because the devil wanted to fuck with well, this him, is where basically. i i really like again the different uh 
approach that Blatty took where, um, you know, there's, there's the school of thought, you know, don't try to literalize too much. And I agree with that, that, you know, that, that, that can become tedious, but I, I also sometimes get annoyed when people pretend there, there is no offered like story or, or genuine plot. And I think the movie, certainly the book is, the movie is pretty clear. This is not a demon. Um, this is a serial killer who has been placed inside back to life inside of a Karis, um, by demons or the devil as a way to get back yes. at, uh, at, uh, you know, the faithful, but it's a very different performance. Yeah. Like Reagan's demon Pazuzu in the first one, it's a lot of tricks and like talking in riddles and just there's, it's, it's not really, Fuck me. A, yeah, Fuck I mean, me. and, and, and <laughs> knowing stuff about your, your history yeah, and shit. pure, pure evil, you know, kind of distilled. But in this, it is a very human person that Brad Dorff is playing. And he may have learned, you know, references to Shakespeare and he's talking about hanging out with the demons on yes. the other side, but he's very, he's very emotional. And he talks about his dad even more so in the, um, in the director's cut. But Kinderman says he kills people who have K's in their name because his father's name was Carl. Like, so it's, it's again, this isn't even really, which is why I think the ending is as fun as it is. It kind of, it kind of fucks up the movie because this is not a possession in the sense of, of a demon. And, uh, it's a more, it's something that I think Dorif could sink his teeth into more than just being, uh, what, what Linda Blair was in the first one, which is kind of a wonderful achievement of like, Special I mean, comic, and, basically, and voiceover. Yeah, well, Mercedes yeah. Cambridge is amazing as that voice in in the first one, but this is just Dorif, and he's playing a human being. He is. Yes, and I I think it also relates back to like the Mask of the Red Death when we talked about how the Red Death was um, the reason he the Red Death looks for you know um, doesn't care about you know the the number the sheer number of deaths is because he's a theater kid and like loves the theatricality and i think that that also is like Brad Dourif's character is completely like theatrical and just is like a the perfect idea of like a you know a human serial killer who is like so um you know cuz a character like that can only exist in fiction because when it happens in real life, you get like someone like Dennis Rader who would kill like a whole family and then leave um, a bowl of cereal out because he's a serial killer. And that's his idea of being like clever and smart. And yeah, that's cool. what actual and serial like, killers are like. I should make yeah, a note, though, that like you, <laughs> uh, speaking of serial killers, this movie has a, quite a bit of lore as it relates to real life serial killers. Famously, this was Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie, and he watched it nearly every day. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you are like Jeffrey and the, the, this movie means a lot to you, you may also be gay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, as we as we uh, I guess because it kind of go, go, goes from the confrontation with. Uh, yet another old person that the uh that the gemini has has had access to you get to that what was the original climax of the film which is that it follows kinderman home 
then you get the giant exorcist scene or the giant exorcism at the yeah. end. And I actually Featuring another exorcist that like just father mourning who we saw like a tiny bit. And then he's just back to do Total this. Exorc- look, it's just, I think the studio was like, look, it's called the exorcist. You got to have an exorcism in the movie. Well, Will, yes, that is literally exactly what that, happened. And, and not only that, the, yeah. but Will, check this out. I, I was looking this up earlier and I, I, I know, you know, that John Carpenter was briefly attached to this. And I just want to read uh, what he said um, about it later. Uh, which I'm, 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 I'm not on, on the clock. I'm just going to use, uh, for my research here, it's, it's Wikipedia, but, um, he says, uh, he explained his reasons. I would never do that for the show. What's that? (laughs) I would never use Wikipedia as a source for this show. Yeah. I only use trustworthy sources such as IMDb trivia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The goof section of IMDb. Um, things my friends tell me secondhand. uh, Carpenter said, I met with Blatty over the course of a week, perhaps a week and a half. He, this is from a book called Prince of Darkness. He had director approval, so he was testing and probing me to find out who I was and how smart I was and whether or not I should direct the film. I was ambivalent about the script, primarily because it didn't have an exorcism. Our time together was a lot of fun. We talked about everything. I kept suggesting a third act exorcism and pushing the both of us to come up with some new, exciting, grotesque devil gags. Blatty was was resistant. He wanted to direct it and wanted to stay very close to his novel. I respected Blatty, figured out that he wanted badly to direct the picture and felt that I couldn't get what I needed. So I withdrew. So it might've been John Carpenter that gave the studios like, Hey, well, you know, Carpenter was going to give us this big sexy exorcism at the end. What are you doing? (laughs) Cause Blatty famously, that's what the director's cut is. The only thing I'll say about it, uh, cause I, you know, we mentioned I watched it today is on a story level. I prefer Legion because it really is a non sequitur at the end. And suddenly there's the fucking devil inside of Karis. It's like, you know, it really doesn't yes. make any sense, but father morning comes out of no, he's in scenes that actually feel injected yeah. with a Turkey baster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. They sprinkle like, him in earlier, but, but I will say that I'm, also there's a man with white hair who did an exorcism <laughs> once in the Philippines. To be <laughs> like, you know, uh, part, um, father Marin part two, you know, basically. Yeah. But, but, uh, Unfortunately, the director's cut is kind of hard to watch in that sense because it is dailies like ripped from a VHS. So it doesn't really give you the power of some of the scenes that were originally shot. Uh, and it, 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 it falls a little flat for those purely like presentation reasons. But um, if you put that aside and you just kind of embrace at the end that like, look, this isn't really Blatty's like true vision. It is pretty fun that that final exorcism where George. Well, I, what I will say about the, uh, the climax of this movie and the father mourning exorcism at the very end when he goes in, uh, yeah. Karis's cell to, to do the exorcism and save the world is that I lo- what I love about father mourning as opposed to father Marin is that father mourning gets owned immediately. <laughs> Yeah, like, right he, like, he, he, literally like, he, instantly. He gets through like the, the the opening bars of the right for exorcism, and then the demon just like f- like smashes his body onto the ceiling and rips all his skin off. Yes, yes, and my also like I think that I read that like they added another million dollars to the budget just for I think this it was scene. Like four million, end. like I, I, I think it was, like, yeah, $4 it's, million. it's literally they like doubled the budget or something or they like added a significant percentage to the Brad, budget just for this one brad brad dorif said uh, he said it really bummed him out uh that they changed it he said 
the original version was a hell of a lot pure and I liked it much more as it stands now. It's a mediocre film. Got to disagree with, with Brad there. Yeah. Um, I disagree with the king. He says there, there are but... parts that have no right to be there. And meanwhile, um, uh, Blatty after complaining that, that a test screening was, uh, was, uh, attended by zombies from Haiti to watch the film, um, <laughs> which, is, which is a pretty, he, he said, you know, that basically they gave him an ultimatum, like, look, we're going to do this with, with or without you. And so he said, I decided better. I should do it than anyone else. I foolishly thought I can do a good exorcism. I'll turn this pig's ear into a silk purse. So I did it. Yes. So, I mean, the Lily Wachowski uh, Matrix. Yes, problem. very similar. Uh, yeah, but but then uh, also, sorry, one more thing from Brad Dorif. He said we all felt really bad about it, but Blatty tried to do his best under very difficult circumstances. And I remember George C. Scott saying that the folks would only be satisfied if Madonna came out and sang a song at the end. He really is. He's just like Kinderman in real life. He, he is, really Kinderman. is so cool. But, uh, he's so. We have distance cool. from it, and I think if you kind of let it go a little bit, it is a pretty fun sequence that he that he did do a good job. Yes, at. he did do. A I mean, who am I going to blame? They want Phil Rizzuto to come out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's cool when like the ground of the cell literally opens up as when when Kinderman comes in and finds the priest's body, he gets pressed up against the wall, and then like the floor opens up, and you see these bodies come out of hell, including the crucified corpse. Of a teenage boy in blackface. Yep. Oh, yes, God the Jesus damn it. Head in blackface. And there's a really cool yeah, shot. It's totally. And there's a really cool shot where it goes back to a wide shot of uh, possessed Karis talking to uh, uh, Kinderman. And it's just real snakes in, in uh, the foreground. And you're kind of, it's like they're almost yes. like grass. Just there's so many snakes. Cobras, yes. Yeah, they're cobras. And there's fire after the snakes. There's like a, a wall of fire. Yes. It, it is, I mean, it's, it's visually pretty awesome. And then... Yes, it's raining inside, and then thunder strikes, yeah. and that's how the floor fall, gives out. And then, like my the favorite, um, my favorite part of the scene is that, um, you know, Father Morning, who was totally useless and was is a dud, um, <laughs> basically is like, Damien, please fight back, please, 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 and like holds up a cross, and then um, George C. Scott drops from the fucking ceiling, and um, Damien is like. Bill, now, shoot me now, kill me now. <laughs> Before he can even finish. Yeah. That is awesome. He airs him and out. I love that part. Yeah. I mean, look, he's like, he's a, like he's a family dog or something. He, and he's a, yes, you know, a warrant. Yeah. He, but for me, yes. like, the, the, scene, the scene works for me because, it, once again, it goes back to Blatty's writing and the delivery of monologues. And the monologue that George C. Scott delivers as he's being crucified on the wall of this padded cell is just like, it's Scott opening up every fucking chamber he's got. And, and like earlier, uh, Gem the Gemini said, I will help you with your belief. And like, and like as, the, deep, your as the pits of hell open, uh, I will help you with your unbelief. Yeah. And as the pits of hell, yes. And as the pits of hell open up, uh, Kinderman just like goes full George C. Scott and he goes, I believe in death, I believe in disease, I believe in slime and every cruelty and infidelity and slime and stink of this putrid world. Yeah, I believe in you, you son of a bitch. And he just goes, I believe in you. Yep. Uh, it's beautiful. It's he's, beautiful. He's like, um, he's like George Costanza where he goes, I believe in God for the bad parts. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that is literally his character. <laughs> because, well, th- but, this is th- sorry, sorry. Well, I'll let you finish. No, but like you know, but uh, the movie, the movie ends that like it preserve, it carves out like uh, you know, as the original Exorcist kind of does, it carves out like some small preserve, be it the church or the the good, uh, gr- or the hope of grace, or like the something in in our souls that there is like they preserve some small island of grace in this fucking ocean of shit and piss. Well, I was walking home last night uh, after we watched uh, Hellraiser, but I, I knew we had to talk about Exorcist 3 uh, again. And so I was, I was thinking about it. And this is what I ultimately find really interesting after all, all the other stuff we, we talked about is um, Blatty had a falling out actually with Friedkin for many years, according to Friedkin anyway, maybe he's being dramatic, uh, but he said they didn't talk for a really long time over the theatrical cut because Blatty was always mad at Friedkin for cutting some of the stuff I already mentioned, including an ending that confirmed like really clearly the triumph of good over evil, which is a conversation between Kinderman and Dyer, which actually sets up, I don't know if Blatty was like already planning. They, they, on, they make their first movie date in the yeah, Exorcist. They, they make their first cut. movie yeah. date, which yeah. is pretty awesome given that I don't even think Legion was written for many more years, but, uh, among other things, um, Friedkin, you know, disagreed with that. And there's a great video of them, I guess, being interviewed for the, eventually Friedkin did him a favor, as he calls it, and made the 2000 version, which put that stuff back in. And there's a great, talk about an old married couple. There's a great uh, uh, clip of them at, at the same table where Blatty is like sadly grumbling, like, I, I don't, I just don't want the audience to think the devil wins, Bill. And Friedkin's like, shut up, you moron. It doesn't need to be in the movie. But, uh, but, uh, uh, so in the 2000, the, the, the version, the version you've never seen, in addition to the more sensational things, um, he, he puts in the more hopeful stuff Friedkin does. But in this film, the one that Blatty himself directed, and, and even more so in the Legion, the one that without an, even any studio meddling, it's even grimmer than Exorcist 3. I won't say, I wouldn't say that good doesn't triumph over evil. Karis does get freed from the Gemini. Uh, he rests in peace. That's the last bit as they put his body back in the ground. But there's still a pretty sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. And the ending is anything. Yeah, it's, it's not a happy it's ending at all. but an uplifting ending, which the original, even the theatrical original cut, you know, Regan, she's, she's recovering. She hugs the priest. She's starting a new life. They're leaving the house. This is just kind of a quiet, grim requiem. And so it's fascinating to me that when someone else was handling his work, Blatty wanted a clear as day resolution of the problem of evil. But in his own adaptation, he is far more, um, he's just far more subtle and, and maybe even like, uh, despairing actually. Yeah. Ambiguous about it. Yeah. It's very Catholic. It's very, very Catholic to be like, to someone else be like which is why i think (laughs) father dyer's character is like he tells him like we're spirits bill we'll we'll be we'll be there at the end of time but then privately is just like fuck we're fucked (laughs) (laughs) i always think about the uh i always think of the the conflict between friedkin 
like the tough Jewish kid from Chicago and Blatty, the Lebanese Catholic American over uh, the ending of The Exorcist, where, of course, like Friedkin, like the legalistic Jewish perspective on faith. He thought it was ironic because Karis saves Reagan by committing suicide, which is a mortal sin. Yep. And Blatty, that drove him insane because he was like, no, you just don't you don't get it. This is grace. This is salvation. <laughs> this is sacrifice. This is Jesus Christ. You don't you <laughs> chosen people, you Jews, you don't understand it. This is this yep. is this is a real Christian shit. You don't understand. Yep. And whereas yeah, freaking just Catholic. like what? I mean, I thought I thought suicide was a sin. That's not in the rules, yeah. Bill. That's <laughs> and he's. I don't know if you've ever seen that. If you've ever seen that uh, that documentary, Leap of Faith, it's really good. It's just an interview with Friedkin talking about mostly The Exorcist. But he he says at the end of it, he's like. I, I don't think the end of the film works at all, actually. <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of amazing. And he's like, Bill could never explain it to me. And I just love the idea of him torturing Bill Blatty for so many years over like that. Because I'll be honest. I think he's right. Like the, the supreme irony to me at the end of The Exorcist 1 is that The Exorcism didn't really work because what, what, <laughs> yes, it yes, doesn't no, work. It, it doesn't work. work. It all. didn't work. No. And what works is he beats the shit out of her for a second and then goads the demon, which apparently the demon wants to do anyway, to come into him. Yes. And then he just uh, tops himself so that he can nip it in the bud. That's not a, that's not a successful exorcism, in my opinion. <laughs> no, it's a fail. No, fail. I, I think... I think that like the the thing about an exorcism is that it it to believe in absolute pure complete and total evil and the existence of complete and total evil you have to like I think the ending of the exorcist what it really puts me in mind of is the Borges stor- short story about the tale of um uh the Borges short story about Judas and about how there's this idea that Judas is actually the Messiah. He is, because yes, because he, he did the most hardest thing. He, yes, he knew that he had to do something, that he had to make not only a one-time sacrifice of dying on the cross, but he had to go to hell forever <laughs> for everyone else. And like just and the idea that anyone would think of him as a messiah ever by even imagining or conceptualizing or even talking about the idea of him as as him of him as a messiah is to completely discredit that sacrifice um to even think about that like it completely like negates that sacrifice because you are not um because then it's not a sacrifice it's like, yeah, as much as is, it was. Is the sacrifice Jesus is like otherwise? Is is the sacrifice Jesus, the Son of God, martyring himself on the cross to live, you know, to to wash us in the blood of the Lamb and redeem our sins for eternity, but also to be brought back to life and then get to go in heaven yes. and live with his dad for the rest of time? Yep. Judas and then be revered as a de- yeah. as a deity yeah. forever. Yeah, Judas is the fucking heel for the rest of eternity, but he was the one who had to betray his friend. Like not like you know, taking on faith that he was the son of God, and then damn his soul to et- hell for eternity, so that we could have Christianity, so that any of this would matter. Yep. And ironically, I think Borges, who I think was Jewish, was was Borges Jewish. I <laughs> oh, let me check my Excel sheet. Hold on, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually not sure, but I think that's like the perfect uh, example of why this works from a Catholic like perspective. Is that or the ending of the Exorcist works? Is that it's um and it's literally the continuity is shown here in this movie where it's like oh no Karis is not in heaven he did not go to heaven for doing something good he did something good to save another person um not because he wanted to go to heaven 
Um, because he is in hell. He has been experiencing hell for like years. And this movie is kind of, I think, uh, a redemption of, and I think it really shows that that point that uh, Father Dyer says, it all shakes out at the end of time. And this is 15 years later, which to us is an Oh, like an insane amount of time to be in hell. <laughs> yeah, it's like, way too to long. Be experiencing actual <laughs> hell, but it is a blink. Right, and it, um, you know, the like, Karis does eventually get saved from hell, and there, you know, it it is, I think, you know, at the end of time, it really all will shake out, and I think it's very Catholic in that sense. Um, by the way, um. He he was uh, not Jewish. That was a rumor spread by our Ar- uh, Argentine ultranationalists. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> way to go, Hessa! Research again. You, are, you, are you said you're passing along information from friends who have seen movies, <laughs> and now you're passing along information from fucking uh, oh, Argentinian man. fascists. What? My friend Ernesto Hitler told me that <laughs> years ago. Uh, I really took him on his word for it. Did write an essay to address it, saying I, a Jew, uh, and and was talking about how he'd be proud to be. Jewish and he might have an, you know ancient you know Jewish ancestry, but some of my best friends yeah, are Jewish. Basically, it was that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, no, I, again, I think that it's a shame that Blatty didn't get exactly what he wanted on camera. But I'll, I'll always love Exorcist Three. Um, I would not agree with uh, Saint Dorif that it is a mediocre film. It is a wonderful film. Almost as good as yeah. the first one. The first one pretty much is perfect, even though it's about an exorcism that didn't work, as we just said. But, <laughs> yeah. but should be called the failed exorcism. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but this one isn't quite perfect, but it it is so good and and honestly, in certain ways nowadays, at least more influential because of the the kind of things it injects into the like horror vocabulary uh, that maybe should get more credit. And um, and God bless uh, God bless Blatty. Um, it sucks that his daughter is apparently some kind of like CIA level, um, uh, uh, psychological warfare person, but, um, that's not his well, fault. Well, DC is the center yeah. of all evil in the universe. It is our yeah. modern, it is, a, it is a, this reality is city of dis in hell. Uh, God, we're almost at three hours. Uh, this is our longest episode yeah. of Movie Mindset ever. I think we should leave it there yes. with these. Uh, I, hope, I, hope, I hope you enjoyed this trip through hell. Listener, I will leave you with this. Save your servant. Who trusts in you, my God? Let him in you, find you in you, Lord, a fortified tower in the face of the enemy. Let this podcast be a fortified tower for you, listener, in the face of the enemy. And save us, your humble servants and podcasters. Amen. Till next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.